0: <laughs> Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Kpasa, mi amigos, mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, konishiwa. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Shalom what is happening, what is going on, I'm ready to rumble. I'm ready to party. I'm ready to go ahead and give you the best sports talk program that you've ever heard. I'm ready to talk about the NBA. I'm ready to talk about the NBA Finals. I'm ready to talk about Damian Lillard. I'm ready to talk about USA Basketball. I'm ready to talk about Shohei Ohtani. I'm ready to talk about Richard Sherman. I'm ready to talk about Eileen Warholz. I'm ready to talk about Scott Peterson. I'm ready. Those are the things that I'm going to be discussing today in this podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, was George truly Wendell Wallace giving it to you, everything that I've got. Before I begin the podcast, what's happening, what's going on, I hope you're good. I hope you're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make your community, to make your block, to make your neighborhood a better place to be. We do that with understanding, listening, learning, educating one another, the rights, the wrongs, the facts, the fallacies, the falsehoods. We do that with compassion, we do that with wisdom, and we do that with the respect of others. And we do that not for us, not for my generation, not for the generation ahead of me, or even the generation one below of me. We do that for our children and their children and their children and their children. So all the bullshit and all the nonsense and all the corruption and all the oppression and all the racism, and everything that's plaguing this world of ours in 50 years, in a hundred years, when all of us are long gone, that our children's children's children can look back in the history books and say, boy, during that time, this world really screwed up, I'm I'm so glad we're at a place now where we are currently in the year, in the 23rd century, 22nd century, if this planet is still, if this planet is still surviving. So let's work on that long-term goals, man, to see what we can do to move this world forward in a positive place of love, love, unity, harmony, togetherness, without hate, without oppression, without discrimination, without any of those things, knowledge, education, wisdom of self, the ability to learn and listen to others while they speak the knowledge, while they spit the knowledge, take it in, become a better person, would you please, would be nice, Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, let's talk about what's happening in the world of sports, man, I've got these NBA finals to talk about, yes, now I know that I'm recording this on a Saturday morning, had a busy week, had to do some things, trying to lose a little weight, trying to lose a little gut, trying to get back into my pants, fitting much more comfortably than I normally do. So for the month of July, 107 degrees outside out here in Las Vegas, Nevada, 110, 115, trying to do everything I can to uh, meet that goal. But also, you know, because of that, sometimes the recording of my podcast gets delayed a little bit. So I'm doing this on an early Saturday morning. So if you're going to be listening to this, this might be a time when, you know, a hey, game five might be starting, game five might be over, and it's kinda like, man, why in the hell are you talking about game four when game five just happened, man? Speed up. Catch up, Mr. Wallace. What the hell's the matter with you? Okay, all right. Give it time. Give me patience. Give it patience. We can get it done. But you know I want to talk about game four. You know, I want to talk about we now have an app we have we now have an NBA finals. Shall I shall I say that? The best two out of three? The first three games of the series were all decided by double-digit blowouts. Milwaukee tied up the series on Wednesday night, though, with a 109-103 victory over the Phoenix Suns. Remember I told you the last podcast I did when I was talking about game, game three, and I talked about some of the players that needed to step up and get the job done for that team to be successful? And one of the players that I highlighted in this series was Chris Middleton. And I said, man, I'm waiting for Chris Middleton, who is, from the perimeter, the go-to scorer. When you need a bucket, the go-to scorer, if you're looking for a play to break down and someone to create their own shot, get their own shot, for the Milwaukee Bucks, that's not the two-time MVP, the defensive player of the year, and one of the best players in the NBA, Giannis Antetokounmpo. That's not going to be his job. That's not his strength. That job for the Milwaukee Bucks falls to primarily Chris Middleton. And I was sitting there. And Middleton's a multiple-time all-star, and he's near a max contract. And he is the Robin, I guess, for the uh, Giannis Batman, as far as that Batman-Robin uh, configuration for each team who's looking to win a championship, the superstar-megastar type of duo that's looking to win championships for their team. For Milwaukee, Giannis is that franchise. Giannis is the Batman. Robin is the uh, king. Um, Giannis is that guy. But his trusty sidekick is Chris Middleton. And I was always saying, you know, somewhere in this series, Middleton is going to have a game or Middleton is going to have a moment or Middleton is going to have a quarter where he takes the game on his shoulders for Milwaukee and leads them the victory, or at least puts them in a the great place to get a victory. I didn't know when it was going to happen. Coming into the series, the last time that he had a great game where he had a Chris Middleton-type game or where he had a, you know what, put the game on your shoulders and now lead you to the promised land type of game for Middleton was game six of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks. And I was sitting and I was waiting and I was wondering, and I know Milwaukee Bucks fans were doing doing the same thing, sitting around going, come on, man, if we could just get one magnificent performance from Chris Middleton, especially... After games two and three, the way that Giannis was just dominating it's like, man, we could accompany a Giannis type performance with a Middleton explosion. That would be awesome. It's almost like playing that. Uh, it's almost like playing that 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 card, you know, in terms of you know blowing things up. In terms of, you guys weren't expecting Middleton to go like this, but boom, here we go. Well, in game four, it finally happened. He finally had that breakout superstar game that Milwaukee needed, especially. When you're speaking about the way that um, the series was looking for Milwaukee being down two to one, if they lose Game Four, then for all intent and purposes, the series is going to be over. Not saying that it's officially going to be over, but you can't give Phoenix a three-one lead going back to um, Phoenix, Arizona, with not just one but two chances, if need be, to close out the series on their home court. So this was something where Milwaukee def- definitely, desperately, definitely needed and Chris Middleton came through 40 points including 10 straight for the Bucks down the stretch shot 15 from 33 from the field six rebounds four assists played 43 minutes Giannis solid 26 points 14 rebounds eight assists would you call 26 points 14 rebounds eight assists solid not I don't know for Giannis that's not spectacular especially after you're speaking about games two or three, he raised the level of play so much to what would be and which would be spectacular, which would be fabulous, which would be all-worldly, that, you know what? From that 40-plus point games, the multiple rebound games that he had combined in two and three, come down to 26, 14, and eight, it's still fantastic. It's still impactful. It's still needed. But again, the player of the game was Chris Middleton. But getting back to Kupo 26, 14, and 8, made the defensive play of the ages. Made the play that when you're going to be watching the NBA Finals in the year 2066, they're going to be showing that play in the promos. They're going to be showing that play on the pregame. They're going to be showing that game in the intros to the game. When you're speaking about the play that Giannis Adinokounmpo made on the defensive side of the ball late in the fourth quarter, that is going to be something where if they're going to be able to build a statue I don't know exactly how can they illustrate. I don't know how much the Milwaukee Bucks community, the basketball team, I don't know where they're going to put that shot. I don't know even who has the shot of Giannis blocking that ball, but somewhere in Milwaukee, somewhere in basketball annals, somewhere in the Basketball Hall of Fame in 10, 15, 20 years from now, that, that, that picture's got to be up there. That image has got to be up there, the play that he made. Situation Middleton made two baskets, gave Milwaukee a 101.99 lead with a minute 28 left to go in the game. Devin Booker, who had a fabulous game, came down on the other side, right side, penetrated through a lob pass to DeAndre Ayton, who was rolling off a of pick and roll. And then Denny Kupo, not only did he hedge to pick up Booker, then he recovered on a lob pass to block the dunk attempt by Ayton. It was historic. All-time great play, as I mentioned before. Put it in the NBA final promos forever. Put it in there forever. It was awesome. It was incredible. It was game-changing. It was game-saving. It was the play if Milwaukee goes ahead and wins the series, that's going to be the play. That is going to be the moment for the Milwaukee Bucks and Milwaukee Bucks basketball. So it was... uh, It was something else, man, for Giannis to do something like that. Oh, and did I also mention, we we, we lose, we keep forgetting this, man. Man, I know you keep forgetting this, so let me remind you, just so you can just shake your head and just say, God damn, man, this guy is something else. Speaking about Giannis, this is a guy who's playing on a knee that many people think wouldn't be ready to go until the 2022-23 season. Have we forgotten? I think we have because of the level of play that the has had played at, we're, we're also forgetting that he's playing on a knee that's hyperextended. <laughs> we're playing. I mean, honest, physically, he's still not where he could be, should be, because of the injury, and he's making plays like that. Not only is he making plays like that, but the ability to go out and not even think about the knee, to the point to where he would even try to attempt that. I mean, okay, it's game four. You got a pretty good understanding of what your knee can and can't do. I I don't know exactly how the knee feels. I don't know what the status is. I don't know what they're doing as far as the medical team is concerned to uh, get him ready to play like that. But just the mental strength that Adenokupo has to go out there and straight from game one seem not to be concerned at all for the knee, not thinking about the knee the way he was playing. You know, I know, we know, your wife knows, your boyfriend knows, your cousin knows, your mom knows, your dad knows, your uncle knows. When you come back from an injury for something that happened, or if you're, if you're just coming back from injury, not surgery or anything like that, but something where... You know, you've been off for a little bit. The knee might be a little sore. The shoulder might be a little sore. The feet might be a little sore. The neck might be a little sore. The back might be a little sore. When you go ahead and then you're either playing basketball or football or tennis or hockey or rugby or cricket or whatever you're out there you're playing, you're thinking about that just for a little bit, just for a little bit. You know, in terms of what I can and can't do, you're protecting it a little bit. You're not going full bore. It's in your mind. It's in your brain. It's in your thought process. It's in your thought conscious. And when you're out there playing, you know that, man. You gotta be like free of that nonsense. You've got an opponent. You got a team. You got a player. You got all these responsibilities that you're gonna be, you know, having to deal with when you're out there playing. It's like, man, I can't be thrown in a fact that I'm gonna be worried about my ankle or worried about my knee or worried about my shoulder. Am I I, I gonna re-injure it again? And I'm speaking in the level of just recreational stuff. We're speaking about the highest level of basketball being played on the planet with some of the most elite athletes going in that sport. And Giannis, again, from the first moment, the first second of game one up until this point, seemed like he has no qualms. He has no worries at all about that knee. And the example, again, was the fact that he made that block. The fact that he swooped in and made that block in the level that he's playing at right now. Sometimes, I don't know if it was because, I don't know if because he's not American or I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but sometimes I think some of the some of the superstars, some of the elite in the NBA. It's not a disrespectful thing, but it's kind of like, I, I don't know how much, I don't want to use the term reverence, but I, I I don't know, like, like you know, LeBron has his click and KD has his click and Steph has his It seems like, you know, Giannis seems to be the one where He's going to be the odd man left out. Like, you know, if like the superstars are going to hang. Or if the superstars are just gonna, you know, go to a club and hang and talk about how great each other are, or go to a, go to a fancy restaurant or go, you know, sit and relax on a yacht or, you know, go get into a tub full of wine, separate tubs, of course. But, you know, when they're hanging out or this idea, there's an appreciate. I don't know if it's an appreciation, I don't know what word I should use, appreciation or respect. I don't know what it is, but it seems like there's some like, he ain't that fucking great type of deal with Giannis when it comes to the upper, Echelon. when it comes to the elite of the NBA. Now, we know the beef a little bit the last couple of years where James Harden was pretty ticked off or was a little bit annoyed, the fact that Giannis won a couple of MVPs when he felt that he should have won the MVP and he was the one that said, well, you know, when all you can do is dunk in your in your athletic, I mean, of course you're going to be putting up those type of numbers. Big fucking deal. You know, and, and I, I don't know... LeBron has never outwardly come out and said, yeah, you know what, the shit that uh, Giannis is doing, give me a fucking break. KD has never come out and said, hey, look, man, you know you want to sit there and talk about who's the best player in the NBA? Shit, you're not going to mention me when you're mentioning him? Get out of here. It just seems like, I don't know, for that exclusive club, like Giannis is a part of it, but it's like the elite of the elite in the NBA really don't care if he shows up or not. But Giannis is a different kind of cat, man, because... Number one, the, the man grew up in Greece and he had his trials and he had his tribulations and he had everything that black folks in this country, when they want to sit there and talk about, you know, the racism and being overlooked and the opposition and oppression and everything. Being black in Greece uh, wasn't that much better than being black in America. The Yadena Kupos had to face the same amount of racism and the same amount of obstacles and the same amount of disrespect that a lot of the NBA players through their strength, through their mental strength, through their toughness, through their intelligence, overcame to get to the place that they're in right now in their life. The Addenkupos, Giannis and his brothers, and his mother and his father and such, his family members, had to go through all of those things. They faced the same type of oppression and discrimination and stereotypes that they did in Greece. So a lot of times there might be a little bit of disconnect because, for instance, Giannis didn't grow up Living the black man's stereotypical black man, what we hear way too often because the narrative is always every black folks that did anything in this world, in this country that we live in has to come through the ghetto and come through a fatherless home and come through crack addicts and come through neighborhoods where everybody's getting shot and come through poverty and come through mom has been in jail and come through uh, brothers had been in prison because they're gang members and all this kind of nonsense. It's permeated through the black community to where, you know, you need to uh, for, for you to keep it real, for you to keep it 100, for you to be a real black man. You know, you need to go through this, the strains and strife of poverty and a broken home and all this type of stuff. So, you know, LeBron coming through his situation early on with a, a single mother. You know, the Durants, how they had to the struggle. You know, a lot of the most of the superstars in the NBA has faced that struggle, has faced that those obstacles, has faced the long odds of them growing up in a situation that it wasn't going to be handed to them, that they weren't going to have all of the advantages that someone who's growing up in Potomac, someone who's growing up in Mercer Island, someone who's growing up in uh, you know the, the great part of towns, the ones growing up in, in, in Bel Air, you know there were no, there are no Fresh Prince's and in, in, in Uncle Phil's, you know making it to the NBA the way that LeBron and Westbrook and John Wall and all these guys have made their fame and their fortune coming up where they came from. So I think there's some type, sometimes a type of disconnect because Giannis doesn't have that story from growing up in this country where LeBron and KD and Harden and all these guys can look and say, oh, yeah, okay, man, I see a little connection there. And also I think that, look, man, when the season's over, Giannis doesn't, hang out. Giannis doesn't have a place in LA. Giannis ain't going down to South Beach. Giannis, when I say going down to South Beach, I mean, Giannis doesn't have property. Giannis doesn't have a home as far as I know of. He doesn't have a home in Miami. He doesn't have a home in Bel Air. He doesn't have a home in Beverly Hills. He doesn't have a home in Southern California, you know, where most of the hoopers hang out. When the season's over, he might spend a little time in Milwaukee. And then after that, he's gone. He's back living in Greece. So in the offseason, he, he's not hanging around the Drew League. He's not hanging around UCLA with the pickup games. He's not hanging around um, them folks. He's not, you know, going to LA Fitness. He's not going to the athletic facilities and the gyms and, and playing pickup ball with the Ben Simmons and the Pascal Siakams and the Russell Westbrooks and the James Hartons and the Kevin Durants and the Fred Van Vleets of the world. He's not doing that. The Kevin Loves of the world. He's not doing that. Not only is he not even in—he's not even in the area. He's not even in the state. Shit, he's not even in the country. So that's it. So there is no like bonding time. There is no working out time. You know, Durant and LeBron's relationship at a time was forged when LeBron kind of took KD under his wing a little bit. I don't know if anybody's taking KD under his wing, but what I'm saying is, you know, there were times where. KD and LeBron would work out together. I know that a couple of times in the offseason, those guys went through Hell Week or something like that, where they would go work out together to get ready for the NBA season. So, you know, you do that type of situation. You get to know each other. You get to uh, become friends with each other. Giannis not being an American, which means that he's not participating in the uh, NBA Olympic program, to, you know, you see a lot of friendships being forged. Shoot, you see a lot of players getting together and forging situations where they're going to start playing together. The idea for Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron playing together came about when they were playing for Team USA. KD, DeAndre Jordan, and Kyrie Irving's idea of wanting to play together, that came across when they were playing for the USA Olympic team. Giannis doesn't have that. Giannis is not going to the Olympics representing the divided, racist, ignorant states of America and, and getting to know um, getting to know Devin Booker and Chris Middleton and those guys becoming great friends and then saying, man, wouldn't it be great in like three or four years if we could all play together? What you kind of see about doing that type of thing. Giannis is on the outside looking in on that situation. So I think sometimes in terms of NBA circles, and I don't know, man, I'm just kind of like looking from afar. I don't know, I'm making this judgment. I'm making this opinion from afar. I haven't talked to KD, haven't talked to LeBron about it, haven't talked to anybody close to those guys. James Harden and such. I haven't talked to any of their representatives to get their feelings about Giannis Adenakupo for real, but I don't know. It it just seems like it just seems like some of the star players kind of roll their eyes a little bit when people start going on and on about how great Giannis Adenakupo is. And it's interesting because uh, you know he plays hard. He doesn't talk a lot of smack. He doesn't talk a lot of trash. He's not trying to get in front of every type of camera and get every type of endorsement and get all the adulation and the attention thrown his way. So it's interesting that dynamic when you're speaking of the elite of the elite and the superstars and with the, the adjunct, the influx of great players from all over the world coming into the NBA, look, man, that, 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 that click, that uh, society, that club of superstars getting to know each other and hanging out, that's not happening because when the season's over, Nikola Jokic is out of this country. When the season's over, Luca is out of this country. When the season's over, I mean, you know, Giannis is out of this country. So we're speaking about, you know, that tight group, that tight clique that might have uh, that might have, you know, been strong or at its peak about five, ten years ago, that's becoming more and more afraid. And I think that kupo sometimes the respect is not given by the upper echelon. Because of that. But uh, that guy's a hell of a player, man. That guy is a hell of a fucking player. And as I mentioned, he's <coughs> got me all choked up just talking about it. As I mentioned, um, he's the most dominant force. I mean, if he wants to take it over, there's really nothing that the Phoenix Suns can do. Now, you could say the same being a Phoenix Suns fan, and I'll get to them in just a hot second. You can say the same thing about them with Devin Booker after game four. It's like, well, I mean, you know, Wendell, you're talking about Jay Crowder and Torian Craig and DeAndre Ayton having no shot against uh, Giannis when you're speaking about the most dominant player in these playoff series. Could you uh, tell me who on Milwaukee is going to stop Devin Booker? P.J. Tucker? Chris Middleton? Giannis? Drew Holiday? Sure as hell didn't stop him in game four, did they? The only thing that stopped Drew, Drew, um, the only thing that stopped Devin Booker in game four was foul trouble. That's the only thing that stopped him. If Devin Booker is playing with three fouls instead of five fouls, Phoenix is up 3-1 in the series, right? Couldn't you make that uh, argument? Couldn't you make that excuse? Couldn't you make uh, that point? But just in terms of the ferocity, just in terms of what he can do overall, yeah, Booker can get you 42. Is he gonna also get you 16 rebounds and eight assists? Giannis can. Is Booker gonna make the type of defensive play at the end of the game that Giannis did? I don't know, I don't know too many human beings walking this planet that could. Giannis is one of them. He did it. Overall, yeah. In terms of getting 42, in terms of when someone becomes hot because of the skill set that Devin Booker has, yeah it will probably be easier for him to score, to put up monstrous points than Giannis, who gets most of his points from transition, offensive rebounds, um, get, being set up by others. Not much of a one-on-one player, especially if you're speaking about Giannis 18, 19 feet away from the basket. So yeah, in that respect... In that regard, Booker, who can score from everywhere on the court, mainly, sure. But if you speak about the other things that a superstar does to help impact his team to win a basketball game, I think the monster of that group is Adenokupo. So, yeah, Giannis doesn't have to score 45 points every night to uh, be impactful, to be the MVP, to have a quote-unquote monstrous game because he can easily get you 15 to 22 rebounds. He can easily go ahead and get you 17, oh, excuse me, uh, a 7 to 13 assists. He can also go ahead and make two or three incredible defensive plays. Booker can't do that. So that's why I say as far as the most dominant, unstoppable, f- strongest force of the series between the two teams, Phoenix and Milwaukee, is Giannis. Be Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about Game 4, the finals in general, regarding the uh, Phoenix Suns and the, um, <clears throat> and the Milwaukee Bucks. Phoenix. Woo! You're a Phoenix Suns fan. Mr. Golden Opportunity, man. Mr. Golden Opportunity to steal that game and gain complete control of the series. You know... Come on, man, you know out there in Snobsdale, Thonydale, Skanksdale, Arizona. You know in Chandler, in Mesa, in Albuquerque. You know that, man, y'all had a great chance out there in Glendale, North, Los- uh, North um, Phoenix. Man, you know that you had the opportunity. You know that you had the opportunity. And you blew it. You couldn't get it done. Devin Booker, Doug it, man, he almost won that game by himself. Incredible performance. Incredible C-mended the lead for finals MVP. If Phoenix could have gotten that victory, let's just go ahead and play the scenario. Phoenix wins game four. They're up three to one. The comeback on their home court win game 5 Woohoo! wonderful. You know, break the you show, know, first NBA championship in franchise history. ride, right. yeah, woo Devin Booker wins the MVP. Where does that put Devin Booker now? In terms of his status in the NBA. If he went the MVP after a game like this, if Phoenix could have won game four, they go back, win game five. Booker is the MVP. Where now is his status in the NBA? Is he now a superstar without question? Without type of don't don't give me your definition, don't give me what you feel is in, as a superstar in this league. If Devin Booker after the performance that he had in Game Four, Phoenix comes back, he scores 25-28. Phoenix wins that series four it's games to one. He's the MVP of the finals. He's a superstar. He is now solidified as not just one of the young superstars, the under 25, the guy who's going to be able to take that torch and be one of the faces of the league in the next five or six years. No, he's not there. No, he's not at that point. He's past that point. Now, Devin Booker, if the Phoenix Suns win this series after winning game four, Devin Booker would have been considered a superstar, legitimate superstar. I'm not talking about Luther Vandross, don't you remember you told me you loved me, baby, type of superstar. I'm talking about superstar in the NBA. Glorious, historic, Kobe-esque type of performance on Wednesday night by Devin Booker. After shooting three of 14 in game three, Booker said, all right. You can take your three for, 3 for 14 and shove it up your ass. 17 of 28 shooting, 42 points. Again, the only thing that slowed down Devin Booker in this game was foul trouble. Scored 30 points, picked up his fourth foul with 5.53 left to play in the third. Headed to the bench. For the third quarter, he had outscored. No, he what in the third quarter. Historic. 18 points, 7 for 7 shooting. I mean, he was hitting some shots that just made you say, God damn. <laughs> I mean, it's... From a guy who played basketball, and I, no, 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 don't roll your eyes and don't start screaming and shouting at me and don't call me any type of names, especially if it's going to be derogatory or racist. I'm saying this, for a guy who played basketball and for a guy who could shoot, not at the level of Devin Booker, not at the level of an NBA player, not at the level of a high Division One basketball player, not, or no nonsense like that, but for a guy like myself who was known as a very good outside shooter, who could hit the three-point shot, who was a, you know, good, at the level that I played at junior college. So let's put it there. Let me go ahead and do that. The thing was, watching that shooter shoot was the form. The fundamentals were just right there. I mean, the the, the way that the elbow was, the way that he faced the basket, he could have closed his eyes. He was in such good rhythm, and he could have made those shots. And let me tell you something, man. As awesome as Devin Booker is when, you're in that feeling, and you've got the fundamentals down like that. A hand in your face means nothing. It means nothing. You can play great defense. A hand in your face means nothing because guess what? Because your body is already to the basket, and your form is so perfect. Again, you can shoot that bad boy eyes closed. Make sure the wrist is snapped. Make sure the elbow is L-shaped. Make sure you're facing the basket. Devin Booker, his offensive game especially his jump shot, beautiful. Absolutely, undeniably beautiful. And here was a guy who was making runners off the wrong foot with his left hand, his floaters. I mean, his offensive game was fantastic. And the fact that he didn't have to rely on the three-point shot. He didn't score 42 points and making five or six threes. He didn't score 42 points going to the line 12 to 15 times. It was a situation that he was in such a good rhythm that he wasn't going to be stopped and no defense was going to stop him. Thank goodness for some of the missteps that he had defensively that took him out of the game because of foul trouble. And, you know, what, what could be the psyche for the Milwaukee Bucks were just like, whew, that's his fourth, and He's going to the bench. Thank Jesus. I mean, you know, it's like, thank Allah, thank whoever you're thinking to like, man, let's kind of just, you know, sits on the bench. It's like, he's in a zone. He sits on a bench. All right, let's see if, you know, if that put out the flames to that fire that he was on. But he was awesome. He was absolutely awesome, Devin Booker. But man, a missed opportunity. And it is something isn't it interesting how we Determine. We think about MVPs. We think about next-level players. We think about superstars. We think about what their status could be and all those type of things. The Phoenix Suns didn't lose that game because of Devin Booker, but yet and still, his stature in terms of what it could be depends so much on the other teammates and the coaching staff and other things and other variables, the referees, the environment, the home court advantage, all these other things swirling around, injuries, all these type of things that constitutes where we would put a player of such magnitude, where we would put a player of Devin Booker at his stage in his career? If, again, Phoenix wins, Chris Paul plays better, Mikael Bridges decides to show up, DeAndre Ayton makes a couple more baskets or something, then, yeah, Devin Booker elevates a superstar, this, that, and the other. Now, Booker can still be great, but if the Suns lose... If Milwaukee goes ahead and wins four straight, all of a sudden, what's going to be the narrative? How how can you have a superstar of a guy who allows another team to uh, beat you four straight times? When you're two to two, and that other team comes to your home court and beats you, regardless of what Booker does, how in the world can we elevate him to superstar status? How can we elevate, elevate him to the point of where he could be if some other of his teammates would have stepped up, done what they needed to do, game four, game five, finish things off, even if Phoenix comes back and wins game five in about six hours, well, what could have been if Chris Paul didn't choke the chicken in game four? If DeAndre Ayton could have played better in game four? If Mikael Bridges would have been a better presence in game four? If Jay Crowder could have used a little bit more physicality in game four? If Monty Williams could have done a few things to uh, help out Chris Paul or Mikhail Bridges or do some other things, what would the situation have been for Devin Booker. All connected. All in the same boat. All in the same things concerning that. So extremely interesting. At least I think so. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Chris Paul. Terrible. Game 4. Chris Paul. Terrible. Was Chris Paul the reason why the Phoenix Suns Suns lost in Game 4? Um... He ain't the main. He ain't the only reason, but he sure did play a big part in it. He was terrible. Ten points, five of thirteen shooting. A couple of those baskets. In fact, the last basket that he made was what with under five seconds left. So you could really say he was about four for twelve for eight points. No free throw attempts. Five turnovers and costly turnovers in the fourth. The most costly of those turnovers under thirty-five seconds to play. Right? You remember this? Paul attempted to drive to the rim, but fell over. Lost control of the ball. Ended up being in the hands of Drew Holiday. Three-on-one fast break over to Middleton for a layup. Put the Bucks up by four with 27 seconds remaining. God damn it, Chris. God damn it. God damn it. If you're a Phoenix Suns fan. Reasons. What are your reasons, man? Give me your reasons. Your thoughts. Your feelings. Because I know what. Are we going to start trashing Chris Paul now? Is it trash Chris Paul day? Trash Chris Paul for a couple of days, days? Are we now bringing out the scribes to write the story of the end of Chris Paul in his career? Chris Paul not getting it done, overrated Chris Paul, Chris Paul this, that, and the other, negative, negative, negative. What's your reason? What's your excuses for the poor game from CP3? Injured, had a bad strong hand, playing with a partially torn ligament in his right hand, because of that deferring too much to a campaign and others saw evidence of that possibly you're going to use that. Is that the excuse? It's starting to wear down because of his age, the minutes played so far in these playoffs, the pressure that drew holidays putting on him. He's been averaging five turnovers a game in the playoffs for the last three games before that only averaged one and a half turnovers for the first 15. Is this a James Harden situation where when James would, uh, would urinate on the bed because of fear that all of a sudden his excuse was no, well, I was just tired. Now I had 42 in game three, but in the closeout games I had eight and 12. That's well, because I was tired. Between the game that I was great and the game that we needed that I was terrible, I got really tired. All of the wear and tear and responsibilities of what I had to do for this basketball team finally caught up to me. Between those two games. Is that a situation now with Chris Paul? That all of a sudden game two was his watershed moment where it was, he, that was. He, he expended every drop of energy and what he could do to help the team. And now he's just a shell of his former self because he's 36 years old and all of these type of things. What is it? What is the reason? What reason are you going to get me? What reason are you thinking about? I'll tell you the best reason for Chris Paul playing badly in game four. You know what it was? He had a bad game. He had one bad game. He's human. He had one bad game. I'm going to tell you something. Go through, check the annals of NBA basketball. In fact, check the annals of sports. Hell, check the annals of life. Bad days. Bad days. Bad day in the office. Bad day at work. A guy who sells 20 cars a month gets somebody where we all think it's going to be a layup. He's got the money. He's got great credit. But they're like, Nah, it's okay. I'm going to pass. Ooh. Man, Jan Smith didn't sell that guy a car. The credit was great. The money was down. They were enthused. They wanted to buy a car. They were looking to buy a car. They needed a car. And our top salesperson didn't get it done. Is she old? Is she losing a step? Is she past her prime? No, she just had a bad day. The shit happens. Man, I thought that motherfucker was going to close that account. I thought he was going to get that deal, but he didn't. Ooh, normally he does. What in the hell? What's going on? What's happening? Shit happens. Michael Jordan. He's had bad games. Jerry West. Had bad games. The greatest winner of all time in any sport, Bill Russell. Had bad games. Shit happens. Before game four, Chris Paul was averaging 24.5 points. Shooting 56% from the field on 53 shot attempts, 9 assists, and 3 rebounds per game. Bad game. I'm not going to... So all of a sudden now, we're going to start applying excuses, reasons, why... He seemingly fell off the cliff. Not Cliff Paul, not his twin brother, but I'm talking about the cliff in terms of yeah, you know where I'm going. No, no, man, it's just he had a bad game. I expect Chris Paul to come back guns a blazing. He's had a couple of days off. I'm quite sure that he's had some uh, injury that he needs to uh, take. He needs some. He needs some uh, time to take uh, heal of some of the injuries that'll happen. He's never he's not going to be 100%. Name me someone in this playoff series who is. But I think Chris Paul, his greatness, his ferocity, his determination, where he is right now in terms of, look man, I've got this is my best chance to win a championship. I don't I don't know what's going to be happening tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to get this opportunity. I don't know. Though I've got what another what 3 chances to get this thing done. I'm 36 years old, nothing is promised tomorrow. I got to get it done. I expect Chris Paul to be much more aggressive in Game 5, much more aggressive, much more scoring-oriented than he's been through these series, with the exception of Game 1 where he scored 32. I think Chris Paul is going to be a difference maker. I'm picking Phoenix to win Game 5, going back to their home court, have that home court advantage, having the Sun fans be really amped up because of, you know, what's at stake for this game and the best of three series right now. So I expect Chris Paul, one of the best point guards who's ever played the game, top 50 basketball player who's ever played the game, a fierce competitor, a ferocious competitor, someone of great pride, natural leader, born leader, true leader, I think for this game, through his actions, not just with his play, but the way he's going to be out there in the court, his demeanor and such, I think that Chris Paul in Game 5 is going to be an absolute monster. An absolute monster. And again, I expect Phoenix to win Game 5. Hey, before I get off on the uh, NBA Finals, the biggest play that could have lived in infamy in NBA Finals histories. History, you know what I'm going to be talking about, right? You know what I'm going to be talking about, right? On oh, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, the missed foul call on Devin Booker with Phoenix leading by three with 3.30 left. After another Chris Paul turnover, Bucks going on a three-on-one fast break. Holiday was, yeah, he was intentionally fouled on the layup attempt by Booker, who at the time had five fouls and was cooking, roasting, baking, frying, sautéing every every Milwaukee bug that tried to guard him. So, Devin Booker, brain freeze, went ahead and tried to uh, foul Drew Holiday. I'm sorry, he did foul Drew Holiday, and no call was made. Now, luckily, Giannis got the loose ball and finished up the layup to uh, pull the Bucks within one point at 95-94 at the time, but... Doesn't make any difference. Jim Capers up there talking about some nonsense about, well, at the angle that I was at, I didn't see it, this, that, and the other. Inexcusable. Inexcusable. Not acceptable. I don't expect to see those guys, those three guys, um, officiating an NBA finals game for some time after that one. That that was egregious. That was, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that. I was on the same level of the missed pass interference call in the NFC Championship game between the Rams and the New Orleans Saints years ago. Now that cost the Saints an opportunity to win that football game. And it was a different situation because Milwaukee wound up you know, winning that game. But if Phoenix wins that basketball game and Booker continues to do what he was doing, that that that's Tim Donahue-level type of, oh, shit. That's game six, Sacramento versus L.A., Tim Donahue. I forgot what year it was, 2003, possibly, 2002. I think it was 2003, whatever it was. I mean, that was that was one of the most horrendous. That was Doug Dengager type of of uh, fuck-up when it comes to that type of call. That was much worse than the missed call by Hugh Holland's with the Bulls versus the Knicks back in 94 playoffs. That the, the call that those three officials missed at that time, game four, Wednesday night, Phoenix versus Milwaukee, that was horrific. That was horrible. That was terrible. That That's, you know, you can't do that. And I don't want to hear some bullshit about, well, the referees are really great and they can't get it all right and they have a really good job. Shut the fuck up with that bullshit and that nonsense. Now, luckily, once again, after the missed call, Booker went two for five for four points. But, uh, you know, if Phoenix goes ahead and wins that, and, Buck, and, and Booker is one of the major reasons why, even if he's not, egregious, inexcusable, unacceptable. Again, we always hear when whenever a referee screws up a call or does something, we always have to hear about, A, they get most of the plays right, and B, it's a very tough job. I don't want to hear that bullshit. I don't want to hear that nonsense. You you know what's also a very tough job? For all these guys who want to sit there and say, well, yeah, he missed a call like that, but, you know, doggone it, the NBA officials, they're not going to get them all right. They're human. They're going to miss some in the type of job that they have, and they're, you know, trying to make these type of calls with these great athletes and not the speed and the intensity of the game and blah, 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 and making all these excuses for them. Bullshit. Fuck you. I don't want to hear that. You know who else has a harder job? You know who else has a much harder job than officials? NBA coaches. The, the, being a coach in the NBA is much, much harder than being an NBA official. You know what else is harder than being an NBA official in the NBA? Playing in an NBA game. Being an employee of the NBA and your job, your job description is to go out and win basketball games for your team. That job is also much harder than being an NBA uh, official. But guess what? No one's making excuses for Drew Holiday going 4 for 20. No one is making excuses for Monty Williams if he screws up. No one definitely is making excuses for Mike Butenholzer, who's been flambayed and roasted and taken apart for every little move that he makes as coach of the Milwaukee Bucks over this playoff series and over these playoffs in general. No one is sitting there going, well, I mean, you know, if you know, Bootenholder, he's a, you know, you, you can't get him right all the time. And, uh, you know, he's trying his hardest. And, you know, it is a high level of basketball. And, uh, you know, most of the time he's getting it right. No, no one's saying some bullshit like that. Mike Budenholzer doesn't get a job. I mean, he's going to keep his job. But what I'm saying, before the Bucs made it to the NBA Finals, right, if they would have lost to the Brooklyn Nets, Mike Budenholzer, for all intent and purposes, would have not been the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. That's the type of shit that happens when you sign up for that gig. If you're not playing well, if you're not helping the team win, if you're not living up to team expectations, the player, you're not going to be on that team anymore. Or you're not going to have the type of responsibilities that you once had anymore. No one's going to be sitting up there making excuses. No one's going to be sitting up there trying to make you feel better. No one's going to be trying up there, trying to con you, trying to okie uh, doke you and thinking that, yeah, you know what, uh, you know what, yeah. let's overlook the fact that, you know, that happened, and let's just concentrate on the fact that, you know, most of the time they're really good. No, no, and that should not be the same. Th- th- those principles that are applied to the coaches and the players should be applied to the officials. The officials, Jane Capridge and the rest of those guys, almost changed history in the NBA after a miscall that was so egregious, it was a fireable offense. Now, am I advocating that those three should be fired? No. Being the fact that they're in the NBA finals, that they had the assignment to officiate the NBA finals, the NBA finals show that they're very good officials. But there has to be some type of consequence for missing so many calls, and especially the one that was missed on Booker with the sixth file. And there's no excuses, there's no reasoning, there's no rationale. He fucked up and he missed a call. And I'm quite sure Caper's just sitting there going, damn, I fucked up and I missed a call. And I'm quite sure whatever you know, whatever consequence comes his way in that crew's way for missing that call, quite sure that Capers for the most part will will take it. Haven't met the man, haven't spoken to the man, don't know anything about the man. But, you know, from, you know, people who know officials, they're like, yeah, man, they're, they're, they, they get down on themselves. They don't sit there and say, oh, I missed a call. Oh, well, make sure the paycheck is going to be attributed, it's going to be written out to James Capers. You know, make sure that check is deposited on the 1st and 15th every month because, you know, big man has bills to pay. I mean, I, I, those guys are just as upset and just as, uh, you know, upset with the players and the fans for missing that call when they see the replay, when afterwards, when they're judged and their superiors go over to play with them. So I'm not saying that, you know, these guys are laissez-faire or cavalier or don't give a fuck or like, you know, hey, I missed one, right? So what? Big deal. I mean, I got, you know, I, I made... I was right on 92% of them. And you're going to grill me about this one? Jeez. give me a break. So, no, that's not their, hopefully, that's not their demeanor and their attitude at all. But uh, that was terrible. That was an absolutely terrible, terrible miss by the uh, NBA officials. Luckily, as I mentioned before, Milwaukee uh, won that basketball game for their sake. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So game five is going to be happening. Let me see here. It's going to be happening right now. It's 1.30. So it's going to be happening in about four and a half hours. So what's going to be the deal with game five? Where are we going with this? What's going to be happening, happening with this? What game four showed, and really game three, but concentrating, concentrating mainly on game four, that the Milwaukee Bucks, to win this series against the Phoenix Suns, you have to make it ugly. And you have to make it physical. The last two games, if you take a look at the offensive glass and the turnover margin, Milwaukee has dominated those two statistics, has won them by a mile. If you take a look, especially in games three and four, Milwaukee's out rebounded Phoenix by 30. 95 to 65. 19, a plus 19 on the offensive glass. Two games. 30 offensive rebounds for the Milwaukee Bucks compared to 11 by the Phoenix Suns. That's domination, Holmes. That's Brooke Lopez. That's Bobby Portis. That's Giannis. That's even Drew Holiday, who's using his physicality to uh, bully some of the smaller, less physical guards, less physique type of guards for... Phoenix, mainly Chris Paul in campaign. You're not going to put Devin Booker on uh, Drew Holiday for long periods of time. So we're speaking about now Milwaukee getting in the paint, and when they get in the paint, forcing rotation by the Phoenix Suns. And when that happens, you get opportunities if you're in Milwaukee to get offensive rebounds and control the paint, especially with Phoenix being a jump shooting team. There is no back-to-the-basket player, for real, for Phoenix. Booker is a guy who gets his points on the perimeter. Paul gets his points on the perimeter. Mikhail Bridges gets his points on the perimeter. Coming off the bench, Cam Johnson gets his points on the perimeter. With the loss of Dario Saric, that's a big man down for the Phoenix Suns. So DeAndre Ayton, he gets most of his points fed off of drives, penetrations, and the works of other players, namely Devin Booker and Chris Paul. So he's not a guy who's going to be attacking the rim with ferocity on the offensive end when he gets the ball in the post. Milwaukee has a couple of guys that can do that. And that's one of the reasons why the rebounding margin is so, um, there's such a difference in the rebounding margin. And when we're speaking about turnovers, plus 17 for Milwaukee. They've only had 14 turnovers in games three and four. Phoenix had 31. Game four, Phoenix shot 51%. Milwaukee shot 40%. You would think by those averages, Phoenix should have won. But look at the shot attempts in game four. 51% shooting for Phoenix, yeah, on 78 shots. 40% shooting from the field by Milwaukee, yeah. But they had 97 shots. Difference of 19, Holmes. Sun shot 71% in the third quarter. Bucks shot 35. They were outscored by only six. Speaking of Milwaukee. Phoenix only outscored them by six in the third quarter. Shot 71%. Bucks shot 35. What is that telling you? Milwaukee's getting to the line. Milwaukee is using their physicality. And Milwaukee is getting the 50-50 loose balls. They're just getting it done. Milwaukee combined to go to the line 55 times in games three and four. Phoenix, 35 as far as free throws attempts are concerned. And now scored them 44-27 in the last two games. Game three didn't matter because Milwaukee beat them by 20. This game, it did. Question is, though, is Milwaukee going to be able to bring that back to Phoenix with them for game five? Is this, are the Suns going to play tougher against Milwaukee? Or is the Bucs going to continue to impose their will? Home Home court means a lot. In this series, if you take a look, the more energetic team, or you know that type of deal, normally goes to the home home squad. And if you take a look, for instance, in the free throw disparity, where the home team is always going to probably be getting more free throws than the road team, in games one and two with Phoenix, Milwaukee combined to shoot thirty nine free throws. Phoenix shot forty. The rebounding disparity was a lot closer. But DeAndre Ayton can't hold the fort down all by himself. And as I mentioned before, yeah, he's averaging 16 rebounds in the finals. He's playing pretty good defense. He's playing very good defense. But uh, had only six points, three of nine in game four. In 39 minutes, going to need a little bit more for him. He'll get more opportunity to score. He will score. Now that he's back on his home court, Mikael Bridges. Hello, where were you? He'll show up for game five in Phoenix. Bobby Portis, is he going to bring the same energy? Is he going to have the same impact that he provides for Milwaukee at home going on the road? So far in the series, that hasn't been shown. Pat Connington, is he going to bring that shooting game? Is he going to bring those intangibles from Pfizer Stadium, Pfizer Arena in Milwaukee? Is he going to bring that over to uh, the arena where the Phoenix Suns be getting down and playing basketball? We'll see. We'll see. And which key players, I end this. Which key player is going to wear down most as the series goes on? That's what I want to know. It's going to be Chris Paul or Drew Holiday. The engines of their team. Both players are playing heavy minutes. They have important, impactful responsibilities. Which one is going to uh, falter first? Now, offensively, Holiday was terrible, as I mentioned before, in game four. Shot four for 20, missed all five of the three-pointers. Yeah, he grabbed seven rebounds, seven assists, and Mike holder said after the game he made winning plays and his defense was tough. Yeah, but <clears throat> how many 4-for-20s can we stand? He's shooting just 33% from the field in the series. He's 6-for-22 from the three-point line, and he's averaging around 40 minutes per game. I mean, he's doing a great job, again, you know, being physical with the guards for the Phoenix Suns, and his defensive versatility means that, yeah, you can switch him from Paul to Devin Booker and other things. But, man, if you're going to shoot 33% from the field, you got to make some shots. Because as impactful as Holiday has been on the defensive end, if Booker gets started and Booker gets cooking and Chris Paul ups the level of his play, there's really nothing that Drew Holiday or anybody else, for that matter, can really do. So if those guys are going to get hot and Holiday is still shooting 30% from the field, you got to stick with them. You're not going to a, play Jeff Teague extended minutes. You're not going to play Glenn Forbes extended minutes. Holiday basically is all you've got. So he's got to be that next guy. Of all the players capable of having a strong offensive game in the finals, Jeru Holiday is the only one that's left that has not had a big, impactful offensive game. Not whole totality, but offensive game. Paul had 32 points in game one. Booker had 42 points in game four. Giannis had back-to-back 40-plus games in two and three. Chris Middleton had a 40-point game this past game in game four. When is Holiday going to have that impactful game? Which would probably mean somewhere around a triple-double. Having a 28-point, 12-rebound, 9-assist type of game while continuing to play strong against Booker and Chris Paul campaign, whoever they throw on there on him, Is he going to be able to have those games? Is Drew Holiday at that level where he can have one of those games? Is he going to have a quarter? I know he had a strong quarter in game three, but that was in the blowout. Are we going to have Drew Holiday give us eight minutes in the fourth quarter of a tight game on the road where he's going to take over and do some things? We're waiting. We're waiting. If you're a Milwaukee Buck fan. So those are the things for game five tonight. I think Giannis is going to be 30-15-7 great. I think Paul is going to have a bounce-back game and play extremely well. I think Middleton is going to come back down to earth. I think Holiday is going to continue to struggle, and I think that uh, Booker is going to be excellent, but not sublime. <laughs> he ain't going to be at the level like he was in game four, but I think I think Booker, going back on the home floor as such, is going to be, you know, is going to maintain a level of impactfulness that's going to be uh advantage phoenix and again the role players the others for the phoenix suns is going to F- suns are going to step up and play well so game 5 tonight i am predicting the phoenix suns to win 3 to 2 headed back to milwaukee and based upon that game man who knows what's going to be happening but for game 5 tonight i'm calling it the phoenix suns will win Online. Ooh um... Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I'm so glad that you could be with us. You know why I um, do this podcast, right? You know why I talk about sports, right? You know why I give you so much passion and joy and energy? You know why I give you so much emotion when I talk about things that are happening in the NFL or the NBA or with my Georgetown Hoyas or... MMA or, or boxing or maybe talk about a little bit about what's going on in my life. Maybe a little bit later on in the program when I talk about a TV program that I saw on the Oxygen channel where you had these fucking assholes trying to humanize and to speak about the goodness and the wonderfulness and the qualities of a Scott Peterson and an Eileen Warholz, why that makes my blood boil and why speak with rage on such issues you you know why i take it to that level right you know why i do it right because i do it for your love 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 love. how about that you know what i'm getting a little bit of shape because four weeks ago There's no way that I can hold my breath long enough to say, For your love. I don't care if I'm out of tune. I don't care. Think I'm going to try to sound like Levi Stubbs or try to sound like Abdul Fakir or Lawrence Payton Jr. or Obie Benson? What do you you think, I'm nuts? What do you think, I'm crazy? You ever heard the song by Bill Weathers? Lovely day, lovely day, lovely day. You know, there's a part in that where it's like extra long. Wanting to wake up in the morning, love. And the sunlight hurts my eyes. When something without morning, love. Heaven hurts my eyes. Then I think of you. And the world's all right with me. Girl, I think of you. And everything. And it had that long, long, um, and, you know, that long, long. Da, 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 da. For me to sometimes test how, what type of shape I'm in. How badly or in shape or whatever i take that bill weathers song um the bill weathers song um lovely day and it's lovely day and it's like long 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 and if i can like stretch it out without having to take a breath i know that as far as living wise health wise eating wise exercise wise i am on the right track so that's what i do for your love Four you left, amazing Levi Stubbs could sing anything, man. Levi Stubbs could sing "Mary Had a Little Lamb," and I'd be grooving and I'd be dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie and dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas. He could be singing nursery rhymes, you know. The Legend, the great one, Levi Stubbs, along with the other legendary Four Tops. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Olympic basketball news. As we start off with some NBA news. The USA Olympic basketball team won their first exhibition game this past week against Argentina, 108-80. Are we now, what's our attitude now? Have we calmed down a little bit? Have we stopped bashing the USA basketball team just a little bit? Number one, I gotta say this. Look, you know, congrats to Nigeria. They've been playing some pretty good basketball. They uh, beat up on Argentina, who's the fourth-ranked team in FIBA. In terms of uh, basketball teams are concerned, so look, Nigeria ha- ha- has had a good past week and everything. But let's let's for the Nigerians out there, let let's, let's, let's kind of start slowing our roll a little bit here. You beat the United, you beat America, you beat the USA basketball team in an exhibition. Okay, let let's, I mean, you know this ain't the miracle on ice. You know don't don't be hiring, Al Michaels to um you know comment you know do commentary on the uh, game and say, do you believe in miracles? Let's calm down a little bit. Now, I'm not going to be talking about your country. I'm not going to be doing any of the racist, stupid, ignorant stuff in terms of equating your country to third world and all this kind of bullshit. I'm I'm not going to go there. I'm just speaking mainly about... You know the guys on the basketball team are chirping a little bit and you know kind of getting their chest stuck out a little bit because they beat the uh, USA basketball team in an exhibition game. It's exhibition. I know the last time that you played in the game that was for real. You lost by forty three. And, and look, great progress. You played great, but you know you have a you have a coach you from this country. A lot of the players who plays who played that game on the Nigerian team has had some type of uh, experience. Playing against American players and playing decent level uh, basketball in this country, so let's let, let's let's calm down. All right, this ain't 1992, this ain't 1996, it ain't any of those. Okay, let's, let's and Africa, the continent of Africa, have done a great job basketball without borders. They they brought in some really good NBA basketball players. So let's let's not uh, sell Nigerians short or the players from the continent of Africa short. Let's not do that, but let's kind of like calm down on the you know, w- walking around like you know, all of a sudden you belong with the uh, with the uh, players and the team from this country. Let's just kind of like you know, slow your roll a little bit. But the USA basketball team against Argentina, Kevin Durant finished the game with seventeen point six assists, three of five from behind the arc. Damian Lillard, Zach Levine, Bam by the Bayou, Bradley Beal, who I'll speak about. And a second, they all scored in double figures. It was a complete effort on both sides of the floor by Team USA. 51% from the field. 44% on 29 three-point shots. Won the battle of the boards, 40-34 to against Argentina. Shot uh, helped them to uh, 38% shooting from the floor. And look, it's the exhibition season. Players are still not in uh, shape. I'm talking about from both teams. I'm talking about as far as the entire tournament. Did you see Joe Inglis? In the game against uh, this guy, against the USA, Joe Inglis, man, what have you been doing since uh, the Utah Jazz lost to the Clippers about a month and a half ago? Apparently not doing anything to get yourself in shape. My man looks about 10, 15, 20 pounds overweight. And believe me, when it comes to uh, being out of shape and being overweight, I know. That's where I've been residing for the past two years. So... Believe me, I know when someone is out of shape, and Joe Ingles was out of shape, so you know, the excuse that, you know, some folks are trying to bring for this country in terms of why we lost those two games is because, you know, we're out of shape, and, that, that, and the other. That, that's, that's true, but it's not like the rest of the other teams that we're playing are in tip-top shape, so let's kind of calm down on that. The team against the USA against Argentina, we won without Jason Tatum day-to-day with right knee soreness, even though... You know, once the game starts and everything gets serious, he should be um, pretty good. He should be ready to go. And the team also played the third straight game without, of course, Devin Booker, Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, who uh, last time I checked were playing in something called the NBA Finals. So they won't be around, um, you know, for a, for a couple for a, for a couple of minutes. As I mentioned before, snapped a two-game losing streak in games against Nigeria and Australia. Should we be losing? games of any kind to Nigeria, debatable, man, debatable. Australia is a good team. Australia beat us before in an exhibition game uh, the last time that Coach Popovich was coaching an international team. Now, that team didn't have Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, and the others. I mean, that team had um, Kemba Walker and a couple of others. But Joe Harris and a couple of others. But uh, still, I mean, Australia is a good team. And you got to remember Patty Mills, Joe Inglis, Aaron Baines. They've all played NBA basketball. They've all been fixtures in the NBA. Joe Inglis ain't scared of nobody. Patty Mills ain't scared of Patty Mills won an NBA championship playing with the San Antonio Spurs. Joe Inglis is a important player for the best team record-wise in the NBA this past season. Joe Inglis ain't going to be in awe of Kevin Durant or Damian Lillard. Plays against those guys years after years. If you're speaking about Lillard and other players from the Western Conference plays against those guys anywhere between three to six times in a year, he's not going to be like, wow, I'm playing against the United States. Ooh, wow we This ain't 1992. This ain't 1996. The influx of foreign talent that's coming to this country and coming to the NBA and have done well in the NBA, they ain't scared of us. That, that, that aura that the USA team had and these players had where, yeah, it was like, oh, wow, we could play against Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Scottie Pippen. Wow, amazing. I've only seen those guys play on, you know, in, in highlights and this, that, and the other. This ain't 1992, man. Those guys, ain't, those guys don't give a shit about us anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, would it be Would it be disrespectful? Would it be shameful? Would he be villain number one if Joe Ingles just came in and was like, yeah, I know Kevin Durant, little bitch. <laughs> Great player. But he's a little bitch. You know, we, we can kind of take him. We can kind of deal with him. You know, Dean will ain't do shit. I mean, that motherfucker couldn't even get that team past Denver, for God's sakes. I ain't scared of him, but he ain't going to be doing shit for me. Bradley Beal, who gives a fuck? I mean, you know, I mean, would you blame Joe Ingles and these other guys who have played in the league for years from these other teams? I mean, that used to be the – that used to be – Anywhere between a 7- to 21-point advantage, just right off the bat. The fact that, wow, these other teams, especially teams from the continent of Africa and others, they'd be coming in, wow, we're playing against the USA basketball team. We're playing against Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and Anthony Davis. Wow, that's awesome, man. I can't wait to tell my kids and grandkids about this. Penny, make sure that the kids are watching this. I'm going to be guarding Steph Curry, Ulo, those guys don't give a <laughs> those, those guys don't care anymore. Of course they respect us. Of course, you know, hey, this country's the best team for basketball. We understand that. We get that. But we can play with these guys. We can beat these guys. And if you're Australia, we've been playing with each other for years. We've been in Olympic competition for years. These guys just got together about 15 minutes ago. Well, we'll be able to handle those guys. We'll be able to do all right. Now, should the USA basketball team be favorites? Strong favorites to win the gold medal? Absolutely. Positively. Undeniably. But as Coach Popovich was trying to tell this jackass, uh, who was trying to, uh, you know, clown him, about, hey, you lost to Nigeria. (laughs) I guess you guys really suck, huh? As Coach Popovich was saying, hey, look, man, first of all, you're disrespecting the other teams when you go ahead and think that all we need to do is just step on the court and we should be able to beat these teams by 40. For the most part, that shit ain't going to be happening anymore. The teams that are... From you know, FIFA, FIBA, the teams that are playing in the Olympics, uh, that shit is over with. We're we're not walking out on the court and just, you know, beating them as soon as we uh, take off our warm-ups and go into layup lines. Not happening. That that's gone. Too many teams representing other countries in the Olympics have too many players who have played basketball in this country, who have played high-level basketball in this country, who have played in the NBA. To where that bullshit doesn't happen anymore because they played against these guys. So that nonsense is not going to be happening. And number two, we're also playing against teams that have been together for years and years and years. And they have a system and they have a way of playing and they have a chemistry and they have a togetherness. And they have an understanding of, um, you know, what their strengths and their weaknesses are. Right now, we're still trying to get everything together. And for those who are ignorant enough to think that, well, you know, we've got Durant, Dame Lillard, and all these other guys, so we should just be able to step on the floor, out of shape, no cohesion, with very little practices, and be able just to beat these teams by 30, you're ignorant on the subject of playing basketball. That's ridiculous, and that's stupid. Again, do I expect the USA basketball team to win the gold? Yeah. Would it be quite upsetting if they did lose? Yeah. But, I mean... You know, this is a this is a flipping exhibition game, all right. I mean, Kevin Durant is what coming off a month of uh, you know being a couple of inches away from getting his team to the Eastern Conference Finals. Lillard is still dealing with whether he wants to still be able to continue his career in Portland. You know, uh, these guys are facing different types of things going on, so you know. Uh, let, let's just kind of calm down with the, because I don't know what to take of this now. For those who are clowning the USA for losing to Nigeria and Australia, what do you make of the win against Argentina? No big deal. It should about, it's about time. I'm not giving them any credit at all. Where are we going with this here? What avenue are we going to take here? What ridiculous thought process are we going to go with here? I take the same amount of, you know, okay with, Winning against Argentina, I take that the same with losing against Nigeria and Australia. It's not like, I don't think like, oh, yeah, okay, now we're back. All right, here we go. All right. We beat we beat the Argentina by 28. All right, here we go. We're just going to rumble and roll through the entire tournament. All right, we're back. I'm, I'm, I'm not going that route. Just like when we lost to Australia and Nigeria, I wasn't like, oh my God, what's going on here? We lost to Nigeria? Oh, we suck. I can't believe this. These players are just no damn good. Oh, Popovich has lost his step. He can't coach anymore. Oh, this is going to be terrible. What an embarrassment. Oh my God. No, you know, it's a fucking exhibition game. (laughs) I mean, you know, once we get into the metal ground and we start, you know, doing the one and done, you know, I'll be paying a little bit more attention, maybe getting my angst up a little bit if. We seem to be in trouble, or I might be paying paying closer attention. But exhibition games in Vegas after the USA team got together like you know four, fourteen seconds ago. I'm not going to I'm not going to get too high and too low on exhibition games. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. <laughs> yeah, we beat Argentina. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. oh Yeah. All right. Yeah, 1992, you better watch the fuck out. We're going to be dominating, baby. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, roster changes going through in terms of the Olympic team is concerned. Bradley Beal and Kevin Love are no longer on the team. Beal, why? Because he entered COVID-19 health and safety protocols on Wednesday. USA Basketball announced that on Thursday that, you know, he won't be playing in the upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games. Oh, that kind of sucks it would have been nice to see a Washington wizard represent us and Beal has been great. And, um, you know, and everything. And if, you know, we, if, if, uh, the next season, if we're circling the drain and Beal is like, you know what, man, I'm done with this. Get me out of DC. If he would have had a strong, uh, Olympic games that might've enhanced his trade value even more, not exponentially, but you know, every little bit helps. But, uh, the, best, the great thing is, is that he showed no signs of illness while playing for Team USA. So it's not a Jason Tatum type of deal where it took him months to finally recover fully from contracting COVID-19. So I'm glad for Bradley Beal that he didn't show any type of uh, illness while playing for Team USA. Now, because of that, Jeremy Grant had to go into uh, the COVID-19 safety and protocols. But all accounts are that he'll be ready to go once the Olympics start, and nothing to be worried about there. Kevin Love, according to Adrian Wojnarowski, is returning, um, is going to be leaving the team because of a right calf injury that kept him out of a significant part of the NBA season, and he didn't look good. Now He looked really out of shape, had a little gray hair showing. He just didn't play well, wasn't shooting well. Don't know how much with the abbreviated practice time and everything, and he could have gotten up to speed to where uh, USA coaches would have thought that they could have uh, used him in games. So, um, you know, it's better that, you know, Kev goes back to uh, Southern California and takes care of that uh, right calf injury and such and get himself ready for the season with uh, Cleveland. Now, the player to replace Beal and Love are JaVale McGee of Denver and Keldon Johnson of the San Antonio Spurs. Interesting, interesting. Johnson had made a big impression on the team. USA Brass, while playing in their exhibition games, he was pretty good in their loss to Australia. He knows Coach Popovich. Popovich has been coaching him for a couple of years. He seems to be hungry, seems to be humble, um, seems to be the guy that uh, is familiar with the style that Coach Popovich wants to play. So, you know, the situation like that, I understand that. JaVale McGee, that's an interesting choice. Very interesting choice, in fact. But you know what? He's a good team guy. I think that he's going to provide good chemistry. Um, He's a rim protector. I know he's not going to do anything on the offensive end, but he's athletic. He's a rim protector. He doesn't have any international playing experience that I know of in recent memory. So, as far as the big is concerned, I don't know who else you could have gotten. I mean, you take a look at a lot of the bigs for uh, the NBA. I mean, a lot of them are not uh, citizens of this country. So you couldn't get Jokic. You couldn't get DeAndre Ayton. You couldn't get Joel Embiid. You couldn't get Steven Adams. You couldn't get uh, any of those guys. Uh, But for rim protecting, interesting. Interesting that we go ahead and do that. But, uh, yeah, so those are the two. Keldon Johnson understood. JaVale McGee. Surprised, but I'm leaving my faith and my confidence in the coaches that they know a whole lot more than I do. So if it's JaVale McGee, all right, JaVale McGee, here we go. For those, also, I'm thinking here on Wendell's World in the Sports Podcast, I'm your host Wendell Wallace. You know, we're still not fielding our best team. Thanks because of COVID and because of the condensed season and for a lot of these players, the best players really didn't get to have an off season. This is going to be their first off season in a while. Look. Team USA still doesn't have LeBron, Steph, Kawhi, AD, James Harden, Zion, Trey Young, Kyrie. I mean, there's a whole bunch of talent out there through injury, just through rest and everything that are like, "Eh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll pass. And, you know, you still have the issue of of COVID. I don't know if any of those guys have been vaccinated fully or not, so I don't know about that. If you could could show the example of Tyson Fury, and the COVID that spread throughout this camp, which caused the fight against DeAndre Wilder to be postponed until October. I mean, you know, I don't know if LeBron or AD or any of those guys had been fully vaccinated. And if they weren't, I mean, how much of a risk were they going to be for the rest of the basketball team and for the coaches and such? And, um, and you know, Kawhi injured. He tore Partially torn ACL, Anthony Davis, nursing injuries, LeBron with his high ankle sprain, Kyrie with his ankle sprain, James Harden with his um, hamstring tear. So, you know, because of injury, rest, and others, they made the wise and conscious decision not to play. If I'm the LA Lakers, now, I don't want LeBron and AD playing. Are you kidding me? You won the championship, you had like an off-season of like, you know, 48 hours, and then you come back and... Dealing with that nonsense? No, man, take the summer off. Don't worry about it. You're going to be going to a place in the world where COVID is still running rampant, and you're going to be playing games in front of nobody? Eh, okay. You know, LeBron has his his gold medal and, uh, you know, AD. You know, we're we're, we're not going there. We're not going there. But, you know, so far, I'm not panicking. I'm not uh, taking anything away from the USA basketball team, yay or nay. You know, everybody wants to have the two losses to be kind of like the foundation of doom and gloom for this team. I'm not not ready to go there yet. Not ready to go there yet. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Oh, and one more thing, because I got to, you know, stick up for my man Popovich. What, what's up with folks up there just trying to like, you know, oh, uh, that reporter got under his skin. Oh, Popovich, the bully. Oh, it's like, what, what are you guys talking about? Did you say the same exchange that I did? Because it seemed like, the reporter was talking out of the pocket. He got his he got his question in. It was a, you know, coach, could you please explain or could you please somehow, you know, tell us that, you know, as a coach, you're no good and you should be embarrassed and the team should be embarrassed and this is horrible and you guys suck because you lost to Nigeria. You lost to a sorry-ass Nigerian squad from a third-world country. Shouldn't you be embarrassed? Shouldn't you be alarmed? Shouldn't you, uh, you, know, con- you know, shouldn't you, you know, uh, say that you suck and all these type of things? And Popovich was like, "Uh, you, you know, he, he, asked, he asked the question. Popovich was answering the question. The reporter obviously didn't like the answer that he was giving, so he tried to reframe the question so maybe Popovich could say, yeah, we suck. Yeah, we're in trouble. Yeah, we're underachieving. Yeah, we're not going to win the gold medal. Yeah, I was the wrong selection. Yeah, we put together the wrong team. Something negative. You know, so he was trying to angle Popovich to say something negative. Popovich wasn't going to say anything negative. He was trying to give his answer, which I'm quite sure he gave numerous times at other occasions, but this reporter had an agenda. So instead of saying, again, he he was like, could you let me finish my question? Could you let me answer your question? Could you let me answer your question, please? Okay. And he just kept going on and on and on. As a reporter, motherfucker, ask the question, shut the fuck up. And when the coach is done or when the player is done or the subject that you're interviewing is done, then you ask a follow-up question. You don't interrupt the person mid sentence while he's giving the answer to ask him or to ask him another question based on the information that he's giving you right now, even before he finished answering the question. He was cutting them off. Well, you know, the reason why... Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that answer. I don't like where it's going. So uh, let me rephrase that so I can get you to say what I want you to say. And coach wasn't going to play that game. And so he wasn't yelling. He wasn't screaming. He wasn't cursing. He didn't get up and leave. He didn't threaten to get up and leave. He just said, now, you stop talking. Let me finish. Now, if he would have said, you need to shut the fuck up while I finish. That might have been a little, woo even though I would have agreed with Popovich to take that tone and to take that attitude and to use that type of language during that time. But, you know, he didn't go Bobby Knight on him. You know, he didn't explode on him. He didn't do any of that nonsense. He very calmly said, could you let me finish? Could you let me finish? Could you let me finish? Now, maybe that's some folks are reading into that and saying, you know, underneath all of that facade, that coach was boiling underneath and the rage was ready to come out. But, you know, I, I it's, it's just... Could you let me finish? Okay, I'm trying to answer the question here. You don't like the answer that I'm giving, so you keep interrupting me. I haven't finished what I wanted to say yet. So how about we do this? How about we be adults? I answer the question that you asked me, and then after I answer the question that you asked me, you, answer, you can give me a follow-up question. How about that? But this nonsense about, ooh, coach lost his cool, or that was an awkward exchange or anything like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Where where, where are we going here? Coach didn't threaten him. Didn't call him any names. Didn't say that you were stupid. Didn't say that was a bullshit question. Didn't say how did you get your credentials. Didn't say that you're a lousy reporter. Didn't say that you're the scum of the earth. Didn't say any of those things. He was just like trying to finish you and you won't let me. Interesting. I'm still behind you, coach. Love Coach Popovich. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Some uh, trades here. What's going on with Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers? He was speaking to Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports because there was some nonsense coming out about, hey, you know what, from Henry Abbott, who's a very good reporter, by the way, talking about, hey, you know what, Um, you know, I'm reporting that um, Lillard plans to request a trade in the days to come. And Lillard was like, well, who told you that? Surely wasn't me. He denied reports that he was looking to be traded. He said I woke up to those reports, a lot of people reaching out to me, but it's not true. I'll start off the rip and say it's not true. A lot of things are being said; it hasn't come from me. I haven't made any firm decisions on what my future will be. Now, if you want to say that he's lying and he's playing games or whatever, okay. But I'm just going to take, I'm going to take uh, what he says as uh, as, as truth. Lillard said he expects to be in the Blazers jersey when the twenty twenty one twenty two season begins. All right, now could times change? Could he talk to Neil O'Shea and Chauncey Billups and those guys get to talking? And he's like, man, I left that meeting saying, eh, I don't think I like the direction where we're going here. I don't. I, mean, I might. I might want to reconsider. That that might happen, but at the time of this recording, July seventeenth, at 2.52 in the afternoon. Lillard said that he expects to be in the Jersey Blazer, in, uh, in a uh, Portland uh, Blazers jersey when the season begins and has no has no uh, interest at all in being traded. Okay. He still hasn't gotten over the first round loss to Denver. In fact, what he said in the interview to Haynes, he was like, hey, look, we're not losing a lot, but we we were eliminated by a shorthanded Denver Nugget team that I felt we should have beat. I just walked away from that really disappointed you should man did everything humanly possible cj mccollum where were you robert covington where were you yusef nurkic where were you zach collins could you please get on the floor please and stop being so goddamn injured all the time so like, i I to see where he's going you know it's fourth time in five seasons that portland was uh eliminated in the first round the Western Conference playoffs. What's going on here? What's happening? These are the prime years here. I'm thirty-one years old. I don't got that much time left. And next season, yeah, he's gonna mark it's gonna mark the first it's gonna mark the start of the four year $176 million contract extension that he signed in twenty nineteen. But we know after a couple of years, we can always get out of that players can always get out of that. They can get out of that earlier earlier if they want to if they are requesting enough. So before we start talking about Lillard to the Knicks or Lillard to the Lakers, or any of that bullshit. I'm going to take Damian Lillard's word on it. And if you're Portland, hell no, do you want to trade Damian Lillard? Are you nuts? Everything that man meant to the team, to the franchise, to the organization, to the community? Fuck no, you're not going to trade Damian Lillard unless he just, you know, just goes hell bent on saying that I want to get out of here. And so far he hasn't. So if I'm Portland, I'm keeping Damian Lillard in for the. Movement of the discussion, I'm no longer going to be doing hypotheticals on where Damian Lillard could play. I haven't even thought about it. Once I saw that he was uh, talking about, yeah, I expect to be with the Blazers next season. Again, all the shenanigans and all the hijinks and all of the what ifs about going to other teams for me. It lost all the enthusiasm, lost all the steam for me to talk about it on my podcast. So I'm going to move on and talk about Ben Simmons here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Philly is actively shopping Ben Simmons. Now that I can understand. They have opened up trade conversations surrounding Ben Simmons. So how much trade value exactly does he have? Because last offseason, if you think about it, people are going to be concentrating on, well, you know, in that series against Atlanta, he was horrific. He was terrible. He was a mental midget when it came to shooting. And his free throw percentage was off the charts. Horrific and you know, It's nice that he's a 6'9", defensive guy, good point guard, all this kind of stuff, but he's making an obscene amount of money for a guy who is a liability within four minutes of the fourth quarter of a tight game because of his inability to shoot and to shoot free throws and his unwillingness to shoot anywhere from anywhere. So, how much trade value does Ben Simmons have? The man is still 24 years old. He's still six foot ten. He's still a unique basketball player. He's still one of the best defenders in the league, All Defensive Team. So, as I mentioned before, he's a guy who I've always said that if you're going to do something with Ben Simmons, first of all, you got to get into his mentals. You got to you got to build the mentals back up. So, I think that I've always said that if you're going to trade Ben Simmons, if I'm someone like Orlando, or I'm someone like Oklahoma City or Minnesota or one of these teams. I would look to trade for Ben Simmons and just say, hey, man, play basketball. We ain't winning championships. We ain't winning conference titles. We're not doing any of that for the next couple of years. What I want you to do is just fucking play basketball. Here's the ball. You the man. Be the all-star. Be the face of our franchise and just do your thing. And if we lose... 25, I'm sorry, if we win only 25 games, 30 games a year for the next year or two, that's fine. I don't give a shit. But what I want to see is you rebuild your confidence back and you play your game. So I think for Ben Simmons, that, that would be the best thing that he would do. I think that's the best thing that could happen. And if you take a look at last season's offseason's biggest trade, which was Drew Holiday to the Milwaukee Bucks. Look, Milwaukee gave up their first round pick for this upcoming draft and draft equity and flexibility through 2027, and two rotational players. So, even though the trade value for Ben Simmons might be low right now, don't expect any of those teams to uh, who are looking to acquire Ben Simmons to uh, you know pull a fast one on Daryl Morey and the Philadelphia 76ers. You ain't you ain't dealing with the Ernie Grunfelds of the world when it comes to Daryl Morey's. You can uh, go ahead and you know, believe you mean you're gonna to have to pay a pretty decent penny to get yourself Ben Simmons. So, according to Mark Stein of Suspect, Mark Stein, Mark Stein, the Toronto Raptors, the Indiana Pacers, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Sacramento Kings, Minnesota Timberwolves are among the early bidders. I don't know. Everybody's talking about the Portland Trailblazers, or there's a lot of people talking about the um, Trailblazers, like. Philadelphia would trade Ben Simmons, George Hill, Gary Clark to the Blazers for C.J. McCollum and Robert Covington. All right. I can see a little bit how that would work for Portland. Simmons, Damian Lillard playing together. Simmons would improve Portland's defense, which uh, was beyond horrific last season. Simmons would be the primary ball handler. Let Lillard be the primary scorer. Not have to worry too much about point guard duties. But... For Portland, it's also a situation where, I just mentioned before, Portland has playoff aspirations and they have a disgruntled superstar who's looking for more. Is Simmons going to be that guy? Again, Simmons at the second wheel, co-star, Robin the Batman. Is he going to be that guy that's going to uh, be an impact player for a team that has high playoff aspirations? Who else is going to score on that team besides Lillard? Uh, Melo again? Are you going to bring him back? Norman Powell, Yusuf Nurkic. You're going to rely on him to be a consistent scorer. And also, if the Trailblazers acquired Chauncey Billups, excuse me, acquired um, Ben Simmons, does Chauncey Billups have a, have a better chance of getting Ben Simmons to improve his offensive game and shot more than Doc Rivers? if, if Doc couldn't get him to shoot, if Doc couldn't bring the confidence out of him what makes you think Chauncey Billups does now you could take a look at his working with his working Chauncey Billups working with um, Paul George and Reggie Jackson and say well there's some evidence that you know I might be able to work but Chauncey was just the assistant coach At as the head coach his responsibilities are going to be much more rangier and uh, don't know if he's going to be able to dedicate as much time to helping out Ben Simmons as he did to help out Reggie Jackson and Paul George. So, I don't know. You got the Sacramento Kings who are, might be offering Therese Halliburton and Marvin Bagley III, Buddy Hill for Simmons and George Hill. And I don't know if I would do that if I were Philadelphia. You got the Timberwolves looking to trade, uh, get Simmons, and they would give up, like, DeAndre Lowe, Russell, and Malik Beasley, and Jaden McDaniels. Not bad. I think... In a situation like that, that would I, I think that would be one of the more advantageous places for Ben Simmons to end up, which would be Minnesota. Because you, always, you, you already have two scorers who need to shoot a lot, and Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns. And uh, he, he could be that guy that could just play defense and uh, facilitate the basketball. So that would be a pretty good idea. But uh, Philadelphia, yeah. You would get back at Jaden McDaniels, who's a pretty good prospect, and you would get the D'Angelo Russell, who made the All-Star team a couple of years ago. But if is that going to be good enough for the Philadelphia 76ers and their ability right now to want to win championship? They were the number one seed in the East. So they're not looking to move backwards. They're looking to move forwards. And it also doesn't address the main problem for the Sixers, which would be outside shooting because D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, and Jaden McDaniels are not consistent, reliable outside shooters. So for Joel Embiid, that trade would be more harm than good if they can't get back any type of outside shooting, because right now the best shooter you have on your team is Seth Curry, which is nice, but he's not a guy that you should be relying on in important moments to uh, be that guy. So Ben Simmons' watch continues. It'll be interesting. But uh, yeah, basketball moving on, Olympic basketball moving on, trade movers moving on, and guess what? Wendell's World in Sports, now we're moving on. Wendell's world in sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down and discussing today in the world of sports. Major League Baseball, second season now starting. The All Star Game, American League beat the National League five to two. Storyline of the game, and I guess you could say for this season, the introduction of new, young, fresh, exciting players going to be stars, public figures for the next generations. Who's going to be The next generation's um, LeBron James for Major League Baseball or Tom Brady or Peyton Manning for Major League Baseball. Who's going to be that guy? Who's going to permeate the regular sports fan's aura in life to let them know that, hey, you know what? This guy is uh, important. And even though I might not be head over heels for the sport when this guy is playing, I definitely want to uh, watch this guy play. Never going to mention someone like a Michael Jordan because that's always... Not fair to um, anybody in any sport. Jordan came along right time, right place, uh, off the coattails of the NBA. Their their um their uh, um, enthusiasm. Their what's the word I'm looking for here? Coming off of the uh, you know the the, uh, the the moving, the grooving of uh, Magic and Bird and everything. Jordan got the uh, coattails of that and took it to a another level. And so good for him. So you know, right place, right time for Michael Jordan, everything coming into play, a lot of things happening that nowadays we see as just every day. So to think that something like that is going to happen in today's day and age, the way that, uh, you know, the world is moving and grooving and doing those type of things, it's not going to be happening. There's only going to be one Jordan in anybody's lifetime. So trying to compare Who's going to be the next guy that's going to have that type of impact? Jordan Woods or something like that. Not going to put that type of pressure. Not going to put those unrealistic expectations on any athlete, let alone someone who's playing baseball. But look, man, you know, baseball's got some exciting, fresh, new, young talent. When you're speaking about Fernando Tatis Jr. and Juan Soto, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Shohei Ohtani. They were all highlighted by the game as the superstars for the next generation. For the youngsters. We have our LeBrons, we have our Magics, we have our Kobe's, we have our Joe Montanas, we have our Walter Paytons we have our Jim Browns, we have our Tom Brady's, we have our Peyton Mannings, we have our Randy Mosses, we have all those guys. We have our Roger Federers, we have our Floyd Mayweather Juniors. I don't know why. We have our Mike Tysons, we have all of a no each generation has their idol in each sport or whatever. Mine when I was growing up, Kirby Puckett was my guy, Dave Stewart was my guy. Kent Herbeck was my guy. Rod Carew was my guy. Lyman Bostock was my guy until he got murdered. So there was a, you know, growing up baseball, I had a good number of uh, players that uh, I uh, looked up to when I played Little League. Willie Stargil, another guy that I looked up to. So who's going to be for the 10, 11, 12, 15-year-olds of 2021 Who's going to be their guide and when they get to be in their 40s and their 50s to say, yeah, back in the day, son or grandson, Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto, Otani, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., you know, prayers out to him towards ACL. He's not going to be back for a while. But, you know, these guys, Tim Anderson, these guys who are, you know, those were my guys back in the day. These are the players that Major League Baseball is shaping to be that for the next generation. So if we're speaking about the all-star game that like I mentioned before, you know, it, it adds a little freshness because, you know, when you get an all-star game, when you start having repeat players or the, the, the squads are a lot of the same players, I mean, the, the for, for those guys, they can sit there and say, yeah, you know, it's great and it's wonderful and it's an awesome experience and all those things. And I'm quite sure it is. I'm quite, quite sure it is. But, you know, after a while, when the game starts, the festivities the festivities are wonderful. You get to meet some other All-Stars and you get to sign the autograph and take the pictures and, you know, the home run derby and everything. Those things are great. But by about the fifth inning of the game, of the All-Star game, a lot of those guys are like, all right, man, it's time for me to, uh, you know, start thinking about the second half of the season and the uh, thrill is gone. The ooh ah is gone. Especially when you're speaking about guys, as I mentioned before, who have been, multiple multiple time all-stars and starting and everything I remember you know back in the day you would have a Derek Jeter you would have a Barry Bonds you would have these guys who were starting the all-star game every year by the third fourth inning these guys were already out of the ballpark either they were already out of the ballpark going back home or they were already showered changed and uh, that's about it you know for them the all-star game was over so as much as the players can say, yeah, this is great and this is awesome. You know, it, it, it loses some of the luster as you mature, you get older, and you start going to these things on a more consistent basis. So at least with some of these guys who are still young, sometimes their first All-Star, their first experience and everything, it would bring a type of freshness. It would bring a type of newness. It would bring a type of excitement that might have been lacking in All-Star games before when they were mainly veteran-dominated. But – uh According to John O'Ran of the Sports Business Journal, the 2021 Major League All-Star game, ratings-wise is concerned. It was better compared to 2019. Over 8.2 million fans tuned in. But for me, for All-Star games, especially for baseball, it's like, okay, you get the, as I mentioned before, you get the uh, excitement of the first inning or two. But once the starters come out and you start putting in, especially baseball, where you have to have every player uh, every team represented by a player i mean once you get to like the third or fourth inning it loses its luster and then by the sixth or seventh you're not even watching anymore especially if the game is not a competitive game so for 8.2 million not bad not bad <clears throat> sorry <laughs> sorry um just taking a look at, just taking a look at the things here taking a look at something that was on the tv screen um i'm, I'm proud of major league baseball for moving the game out of the state of georgia taking a stand against the state legislator, trying to uh, enact laws to suppress the voting rights for minorities, of course, Republicans, being the soulless assholes that they are, claim that this was the reason why the ratings were down for the game. You know, use the statistics however however way you want them. You know, they're talking about in 1980, 36 million people tuned into the All-Star Game in 2015. And, in the you know, in, even in the age of interleague play that the... All-Star game still drew 11 million. So because of, you know, MLB trying to be like major, like a, the uh, basketball league and the NBA and trying to be woke and all of this nonsense, that somehow, some way, this was a backlash, that the 8.2 was somehow a backlash from fans who were still butthurt because of the move from the state of Georgia, moving the All-Star game from the state of Georgia to Colorado. for For those guys... Why don't you fucking go kiss my ass, you fucking gutless cowards? Um, that's my that's my thought process with them. Thought the tribute to Hank Aaron before the game was very well done. For all of the shit that Rob Manfred um, receives, a lot of it because of the stuff that he does, because of some of the moves that he makes. I think praise needs to be heaped on him in Major League Baseball for what they did with the tribute to. Hank Aaron, so you get much praise and credit for that. But, uh, you yeah, know, it was a good it was a good time. I thought it was pretty good. Didn't watch anything as far as the uh, celebrity game is concerned, but I thought the home run derby was pretty good. I thought the, uh, you know, before the game starts and everything, and once the game started a little bit, I thought it was good for me being a semi-casual, a little bit more than a casual baseball fan. I thought they did a good job. And uh, this was a situation where, you know, basically they had, Monday and Tuesday all to themselves. The NBA wasn't on. You had, what, an Olympic basketball game, an exhibition. That was about it. But, you know, Major League Baseball, I thought, took advantage of the time and the spotlight that was shown on them. Now let's see what it does to contribute in terms of once we get back and baseball is starting once again the second half as far as the storylines are concerned. Some interesting ones. San Francisco Giants, can they stay in first place? Best division in baseball. They're, they have the best record in baseball, 58 and 32. Two games ahead of the Dodgers, six games ahead of the Padres. What are the Chicago Cubs going to do at the trade deadline? They've got Chris Bryant. They've got Anthony Rizzo. They've got uh, Javier Baez. What's going to be up with them? Is Baez going to be possibly traded to the New York Mets? Now that's Francisco Lindor has been put on the DL. So all of those things are they going to be buyers? They're going to be sellers. They're currently 45, 46 eight games behind Milwaukee in the NL Central. So if you're thinking about the upcoming trade deadline with the Chicago Cubs, yeah, they could be sellers. But for Chris Bryant, who's having a renaissance of a year in terms of what he did last season, what are you going to be able to get with him? How, how What type of trade value are you going to receive from him? And also, moving forward, which one of the young new superstars is going to have the biggest impact for their teams? As much as I would love Shohei Otani to be doing something for my Anaheim Angels, their pitching staff absolutely, positively, undeniably sucks. So right now, the Angels are in fourth place in the NL West, 10 games behind the Houston Astros. And even with Mike Trout, whenever he returns, I don't think that's going to be enough to propel the Angels to any type of relevancy uh, for playoff spots and something like that. You have a Fernando Tatis. Who's going to be an integral player for the San Diego Padres? That they try to uh, make the move in their division and in the uh, National League. Juan Soto playing for a team right now in Washington that's not uh, doing anything. They're uh, they're near the bottom of their division, so it's going to be interesting to see which one of these guys are going to be doing anything. I want to take I want to take this subject here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Yours truly, Wendell Wallace. I want to talk a little bit about what Stephen A. Smith said. I didn't hear all of it. Really don't care what he says for most of the time. But this stuff about Shohei Hotani can't be the face of the league because he doesn't speak English or something like that. Then he went ahead and said that he doesn't watch Angels bas- uh, baseball games. He hadn't watched any of the uh, baseball games that the Angels have played. So, which makes his analysis, which makes his opinion about Sho- Shohei Hotani can't be the face of the league even more ridiculous. Here's Here's the deal. Which I think. Now, I think Otani great player. 33 home runs in 89 games. He's on the pace for 60. Is he going to hit 60? No. If he hits 52, 54, that'll be awesome. Finished the first half of the season with 16 home runs in 23 games. Awesome. Currently batting 278 with 72 R RBI. Awesome. But but here's the deal. Well, would it be... Would, can Shohei Otani be the face of Major League Baseball? Yes. Here's what I think Stephen A. was trying to go with this. Would Shohei Ohtani be a bigger deal, would be a bigger face for the game of baseball if he spoke English? The answer to that is yes, without question. If Shohei Ohtani could speak English, which means he could give more interviews, which he could be more open to advertising and marketing and that type of thing, yes, Shohei Ohtani would be It would be, he would be bigger as far as the face of baseball if he could do those things because he doesn't speak English. He still uses an interpreter. Despite all of those things, can Shohei Otani still be the face of baseball? Yes, because the guy's a fucking awesome player with an unbelievable story. The fact that we're seeing a modern day Babe Ruth playing in our midst right now is just fucking awesome. It's unbelievable. That right there makes him the face of the franchise, even if he didn't say a word. I don't care if he spoke English, didn't speak English, didn't speak at all. I don't care, care what nationality he's from. The fact that Shohei Ohtani is doing what he's doing is fucking unbelievable, which, of course, makes him the face of the franchise, What makes him the face of baseball. Absolutely, flippin' lootly. But what I think Stephen A. Smith was trying to say was because he doesn't speak English, there's a ceiling to how far he can go that wouldn't be as high if he spoke English. And let's be, let's be for real about it. If Shohei Otani was some white guy from New York, New Jersey, Kansas, Oklahoma, South Dakota, whatever, if he was American, his chances of being the face of baseball would be much higher. Why? Because of the country that he was born and the color of his skin. Now, the fact that he doesn't speak English, the fact that he, he was not from this country... Does that mean he cannot be the face? No, of course not. He's already the face. But what I think Stephen A. was trying to say, and what he should have said, was: while yes, Shohei Ohtani can be the face of baseball, he could be a great, you know, ambassador for baseball. I mean, he could do a lot of things for the game of baseball. I think that he's a positive influence and an awesome uh, person to be that guy. The fact that in this country where you speak English. And the last time I checked, the Japanese language is not the second language spoken in this country. The fact that he does not speak English, the fact that he does not have white skin, and the fact that he's not American limits the growth of how big that he can be. Baseline, foundation-wise, he's already big. But because of the fact that he doesn't speak English, because of the fact that when the season's over, he's going to go back to Japan, because of the fact that he's Japanese and he's claimed by the Japanese, he's all about the Japanese, the Japanese culture, he's Japanese. He's not trying to become an American citizen. He's not trying to come over here and marry a white woman and try to live the idyllic, stereotypical American life. That because of those things, there's going to be a ceiling to how far he can go. That's all he's trying to say. And I agree with that. It doesn't make him homophobic. I'm not homophobic. Of course, it doesn't make him homophobic. It doesn't make him xenophobic or anything like that. He's just telling the truth. In the world that we live in, in this country that we live in, yeah, for the most part, if you're an advertiser, you want all the biggest superstars to be white. <laughs> it's, just, it's the way it is. It's the way it goes. LeBron James could have been white. Lord, that's goodness gracious. If Michael Jordan could have been white, good Lord, have sexed alive. Could you imagine how big that would be? If Tiger Woods was white, could you imagine how much bigger he would be? So yeah, of course. You know, when, when you're not white, there's a there's a ceiling that you go that you that you have. But uh, you know, to, to say that he could not be because the fact that he doesn't speak English or because he's Japanese—that's ridiculous. So I think that's what um, Stephen A. was trying to get at with that. Shohei Otani, Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, what's the difference between, I speak English. I don't, I, you know, to me, Japanese and Portuguese and any other foreign language spoken, I don't understand it. So for me, who cares if you're Hispanic? Who cares if you're um, Japanese? Who cares if you're Arab? But you don't speak the language, I mean, for me, it's going to be kind of a ceiling of how much I can get into you, how much I can really dig you, how much I can really get behind you. I'm still going to cheer like hell for you. I'm still going to admire you. I'm still going to be like, yeah, you the man, and this, that, and the other. But would it be better if you spoke English so I can understand what you were saying? Sure, absolutely. So there we go. But you're still going to be my guy. You're still going to be the guy that I want to uh, lead the the this uh, you know lead baseball if you're the best player by far and what he's doing. Absolutely. So that's what he was doing. Shohei Ohtani, the face of baseball? Yes. But because of the language barrier and where he's from, is there a ceiling to how far he can get to? Absolutely. Again, yes. segment alert last segment alert wendell's world in sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us i hope that you enjoyed the podcast today as we started to get down to the end of the podcast spoke about some nba spoke about some trade rumors spoke about olympic basketball very quickly hit the uh, major league baseball i guess uh I got to start paying a little bit more attention now. You had the NBA Finals going on, man. I told you now. I told you who my wife was. I told you who I loved the most. I told you right now that, you know what, once the NBA goes away, and there's nothing going on. And, you know, NFL training camps start to become mundane. I'm going to uh, hook up with Major League Baseball. Don't worry about it. I'm going to send the NBA. The NBA is going to be going on vacation. I'll be checking in with it. You can text me. You can call me. You can do these things. Just don't come home. Because, you know, the NBA might come home and they might see Major League Baseball, you know, me and Major League Baseball snuggling up with each other. So, I mean, you know, that, that, that wouldn't be good. You know, I got the, uh, got the NFL down the street a little bit. I'm going to go to their crib, go ahead and take a look at that for a little bit. But, uh, you know, when we're speaking about relationships. If I could use it in terms of women, me being single and everything, as I mentioned before, the love of my life, NBA. But... You know, I can't eat steak every single night. If I've got lobster, shrimp, and some other things that I want to devour also. Love steak the most, but I also love some shrimp, some scallops, and some other things. Some fried chicken, some other things. So, you know, you go ahead with the NBA. Go ahead, do your little thing. And I'm just going to go ahead and uh, play footsies and get a little good loving from some Major League Baseball. So I wanted to uh, get into that. And once the NBA Finals are over, I will be getting much more into Major League Baseball. So there you go. I hope you guys understood exactly what the fuck I was talking about because I sort of kind of do, but I can also sort of kind of see where I'm confusing the fuck out of everybody. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. NFL training camp not start in less than two weeks, huh? Let me take a look at the preseason schedule here. We've got the Pittsburgh Steelers and Dallas Cowboys. They report July 21st. Wait a minute, is that a Tuesday? That's Wednesday, right? Today's the 17th, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. So they start coming in on the um, this upcoming Wednesday. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers report the twenty fifth. Then the twenty nine NFL teams they report on the twenty seventh. So there we go. You got the Hall of Fame game, October. Excuse me, geez, August fifth between the Dallas Cowboys and Pittsburgh Steelers. The preseason twelfth game begins. Uh, week one, and then the August 12th, the 19th, and the 27th. Those are the three preseason weeks because you got to remember 17 games and one less preseason game. Are there any news on Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson that I need to get into? Anything? We don't know if Aaron Rodgers is going to report. We don't know what's going on with Deshaun Watson. He's still with the uh, Houston, Texas. I mean, unless something happens for real i'm not really into uh rumor and innuendo when it comes to rogers and deshaun watson i mean i have my fill of it and then after a while it's like i just lose interest and it's like all right just let me know exactly when they're going to be traded or let me know exactly when a trade is going to be coming down hold on for a second hold on for a second hold on for a second i gotta get this off my chest all right i'm watching this humera commercial as i'm recording this and it's like did you see the commercial where those two women are doing the um the two women are doing the podcast from the garage and the one woman's like oh I got to you know I got to take a shit I got to go and then you know the woman's eating onion rings and she can't have them because it messes up her stomach and then they're about to start the podcast and she doesn't know if she's going to make it but you know the garage door opens it's her and thank goodness do you see the look that this black girl is giving this uh, white woman? Or this black woman is giving this white woman? You're going to try to tell me that, you know, you're going to try to tell me that there ain't some hanky-panky going on there? Like, this black woman is like, you know what? I'm kind of digging you more than just friendship. And this white woman is so oblivious because she's just babbling on, like I'm doing right now, that she's totally unaware that this black woman is just digging on her in terms of, man, if I could just kind of, like, get you in the sack. Good Lord, have mercy. Love the fact the white woman is very gorgeous. I got a just bring it to everyone's attention. It's like you know, kind of upsets me that uh, you know, Humera is having a commercial where the white woman is better looking than the black woman. But uh, when I took a look at that commercial, it's like you know, first of all, from the black one, I'm like, damn bitch, you're gonna show up on time or what? You better tell me what the fuck's going on because we're about ready to start and you come you come walking in here with a smile on your face, you put on the headphones and act like nothing's happening. Damn near give me a heart attack and you know I want to sleep with you to begin with. So you know, you better you know come correct with me and this, that and the other. So, so you got that. It's just, you know, who looks at, who looks at a person that way? Huh? Who looks at a person that way? If you like somebody, if we're boys or, you know, that's my homegirl and everything like that, homegirls don't look at each other that way. Or one homegirl does not look at another homegirl that way in terms of you know, like the way that black girl was taking a look at that girl in that Humira commercial. It's like, no, nah, that's not. That's more than just, hey, you're my friend, and I was concerned about you, and thank goodness that you're okay. That's more of, man, I want to rip your clothes off, and I just want to go to town on your ass. I mean, that's just, I'm serious. I'm serious. There's no way that a female is going to be taking a look at another female like that without intentions of saying, ooh, I want to get you into it. Mm. Because fellas don't look at each other like that. I mean if somebody was looking at me like I don't give a damn if I just had a near death experience. I don't give a damn what I went through. Other than just constipation. I don't I don't give a damn. If someone's just gonna be looking at me like that, I'm gonna be like, hey look man, you better back the fuck up because you know, I, I ain't playing that shit. You know. Oh, I'm just happy that you're alright. No 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 no. No 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 no. So those no, commercials. Especially the one bitch who's singing on the guitar and the band members are like, where the fuck's she at? And they're at the concert and they're like, where is she? And she just walks on stage and, just, and just starts singing and everyone's like, oh, there she is. I would have been like, damn, bitch, after the show, we're going to have to have a little talk because, you know, either either you get some Humira and straighten up or we're going to fire her as and bring bringing someone who can hold their shit together, literally. So I just, those Humira commercials just... They just rankle me. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, no new, uh, getting back to the NFL, no new news on Aaron Rodgers or Sean Watson. So no need to go into that. I do want to get into some Richard Sherman news. Pleaded, not, uh, pleaded guilty, not guilty, excuse me, to five misdemeanor charges stemming from his arrest at his in-laws home northeast of Seattle, earlier this week. According to documents filed by the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office on Friday, the charges include two domestic violence counts, criminal trespass in the second degree and malicious mischief in the third degree, along with resisting arrest, driving while under the influence and reckless endangerment of roadway workers. All charges are misdemeanors punishable by up to 90 days in jail. He won't see jail or gross misdemeanors punishable by up to one year. He ain't seen any jail time. So let me stop. Um, Let me see. Sherman posted this statement on his Twitter account. I am deeply remorseful for my actions on Tuesday night. I behaved in a manner I am not proud of. I have been dealing with some personal challenges over the last several months, but that is not an excuse for how I acted. The importance of mental and emotional health is extremely real and I vow To get the help I need, I appreciate all of the people who have reached out in support of me and my family, including our our community here in Seattle. I am grateful to have such an amazing wife, family, and support system to lean on during this time. He was arrested Sherman on Wednesday after police said he crashed his car in a construction zone along a busy highway east of Seattle and then tried to break into his wife-in-law's home in the suburb of Redmond, Washington. Here is the audio, audio, in fact, of Sherman trying to break into the home of his in-laws. Come through.
1: Come through, bitch.
0: According to police reports released on Thursday, the officers were cautious about arresting Sherman because of his size, strength, and belligerence. So Sherman displays severe mood swings and slurred speech, had bloodshot eyes, watery eyes, and had the odor of intoxicants emitting from his person during contact with authorities. Um, scary stuff. Glad no one was hurt. I'm glad that uh, Sherman said that he's vowing to... Um, change or get help. I'm glad that he took ownership of what happened. And uh, again, I'm glad that uh, no one's hurt. It's a personal matter, and I, I wish him luck. I'm not going to go one way or the other in terms of uh, you know the incident that took place. I don't know what in, I don't know what conspired to have Sherman act like that. I don't know what got him in that position. I don't know. If I've ever been in that position, if I was, I don't know how I would react. Hopefully, I wouldn't get drunk or do any of those those other things, but I don't know. I have no idea. I would hope not, but for the grace of God, I haven't been in a position to possibly have me do the type of things that Richard Sherman uh, is accused of doing or he's arrested for, but uh, good luck to him. Uh, As far as football or anything else is concerned, you know, trivial, I mean let's let, let's get him the help that he needs. I'm quite sure regardless that he'll be facing some type of suspension, but that's not the uh, that's not the uh, biggest thing that we should be worried about. the NFL shouldn't be worried about in terms of NFL fans shouldn't be worried about the image of the NFL shouldn't be worried about um, the main thing that's getting Richard Sherman uh, having Richard Sherman get the help that he needs to help his family and this is about him and his family. This is not about. I hate I hate when athletes apologize to the fans, and hate when when um athletes apologize for the stuff that they do. You don't have to apologize to me. You didn't hurt me. You didn't try to break down my door. That, that's a personal matter between you and your family members and everybody that's involved. So, what are you apologizing to me for? I, you you didn't do anything to me. So, when they, when they start doing that stuff, like when someone's accused of domestic violence and they Want to go to the you know beat up you know, the, the the battered women's shelters and all this kind of stuff and continue to apologize and to apologize and to apologize? You didn't you know so I, to me it's like look man don't don't worry about apologizing to the people who don't know you you don't know them you never had any contact with them you never had any interaction with them don't 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 apologize to them they don't need your apology you don't they don't deserve your apology they shouldn't even want your apology you apologize and fix the people that you affected by your actions. Not me, not anybody else, not your fans, not the football fans, not the community, none of that kind of stuff. Straighten up the people who have been dealing or were dealing with this situation. All right, before I get out of here, here on Wendell's World of Sports, I want to deviate just a second, real quickly, just real quickly, because I was watching a television show the other day called Snap. It's on Oprah's channel, the Oxygen Oxygen channel. And the show where they have Snap, they have Cold Justice, these crime and justice shows. And whenever, you know, they have something about a serial killer or serial killers, the crime and justice version of that, I stop what I'm doing and that becomes my main focus. I'm not into serial killers themselves. I'm not a fan of serial killers themselves. They'll not sit up there talking about I'm a fan of Richard Cunningham or Wayne Williams or Paul Joseph Kearney or Ted Bundy or any of those fucking clowns. No, no, the Grim Sleeper and all this kind of nonsense. No. No, I am not fan of theirs. I want all of those motherfuckers to rot in hell, along with Dorothea Puente, who's already dead, thank goodness, and Eileen Wuornos, who's dead, thank goodness, and every other serial killer out there. Female, male, black, white, Hispanic. I don't give a damn. Doing what they do, kill them all. Get rid of them all. Get rid of them all. Um, you know, Herman, Sherman, uh, Wesley Sherman, uh, whatever. whatever um, holy shit, Paul Bernardo, Um wow Kenneth Bianchi and all those guys get rid of them get rid of them so this is now something where it's like wow I watch these shows because I'm like a serial killer fan or something like that I enjoy the crime and justice I enjoy the um how they get caught in everything and how they their interactions BTK uh the Green River Killer I just am interested in more of how they got caught and the stories of the victim and those type of things. So those that's what I tend to uh, be fascinated with and enthralled with and captivated with. So this show called Snap, that's on the Oxygen Channel, they were doing a two-hour special on um, back-to-back on Eileen Warnos and Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson was the one who killed Lacey Peterson and then her child and everything. He was sitting on death row in California for a while until the Supreme Court... Um, said that's okay. We'll just you know put you in prison for the rest of your life. I just hope he gets shanked or gang raped or something like that. I hope that uh, you know every single moment of his life is nothing but hell for what he did to that beautiful young lady and their unborn child because of his selfish, narcissistic fucking asshole ways. But um, during this program, they're sitting there and it's like, especially with Eileen, Eileen Wurlo's, they're because she's a woman. They're giving all of the bullshit on why the criminal justice system failed and why she shouldn't have been on death row and why she shouldn't have been executed and how it was an unfair trial and somehow some way she turned out to be a victim. This fucking psychopathic bitch who's killed six or seven people all of a sudden now is a victim because she was up there in court talking about, well, you know, she was raped and she had a tough life and I've seen the, and I've heard the, the story of Eileen Warnos before from many different views and many different angles. Why is it with serial killers who are women? Why do they do the same shit in terms of, well, you know, they had a tough life and, you know, they weren't treated great and this, that, and the other? It was the same thing with, um, all. Oh, it's escaped my mind. The woman who was put to death in, uh, Texas years and years and years ago who, uh, Right now, the name can't come to me, but it will in about 15 minutes after I'm done. But it was the um, Carla Faye Tucker. Thank you. Thank you, Brain. Carla Faye Tucker. Well, you know, as a kid, she wasn't loved. And as a kid, she was treated badly. And Nileen Warnos, you know, her mother gave her up. And the adopted family really didn't pay too much attention to her. And she was abused. And she was a prostitute at a young age. And when she was a prostitute, she was abused and all of these type of things. Hey look man, that sucks. That's horrible. That's terrible. All of those things are bad. And I feel sorry for her for having to bring the go through a life like that. That's terrible. That's horrible. That's unimaginable. But guess what? That doesn't give you an excuse to start killing men. That doesn't give you an excuse to stop killing to start killing and robbing men. Period. End of discussion. Stop it. But you know, you get these fucking half-brained dimwits. Defense attorneys and psychologists and Eileen Warno fans and women shouldn't be on death row fans. And it's like they, they do everything humanly possible to turn these women into victims in terms of, well, damn, do you want these women in prison at all? Because now all of a sudden they bring the, well, you know, this crazy ass bitch was talking about, well, she got raped by this guy and that's why she shot him. She got raped, so she shot the guy in the back? And she shot the guy in the back of the head? That's claiming self-defense when you shoot somebody in the back in the back of the head. Now, look, if you're in an abusive relationship and a guy puts his hands on you in a violent way, hey, I'm all for a woman grabbing a gun, an axe, any type of weapon, and defending yourself. And if it means killing that son of a bitch, you go ahead and kill him. Because I would rather see the victim live than the person who's doing the victimizing live. Even if that meant the victimizer would go to jail for the rest of his life. Because the person that he killed is dead. So that means their family members and their friends and their community have to mourn the fact that their wife or, not the wife, but I mean their, their, their daughter or their other family member, they're dead. So they can never have a birthday. They can never have anniversaries. They can never go see them. They can never go talk to them. They can never go write with them. They can never Skype them. They can never do anything. Why? Because they're dead. Meanwhile, the person who kills that person, they're in prison. And the Bible-thumping losers come back to them and they make them try to get all right with Jesus. And then they get visitors and then they get book deals and then they get uh, interviews and then they get shows and then they get all of these things um, where they're still living. They're still living. So no, if it comes down to someone who's doing the abusing to the point of physical harm, real physical harm, I'm all for women taking a gun, a weapon, and doing what you need to do. If that means blowing his head off, if if some if the guy's coming home, and he's drunk, and he's belligerent, and the woman is like, I know what happens when a guy, when my husband or my boyfriend comes home drunk and belligerent, that means that I'm going to get a severe ass whooping, not tonight, when he comes up the stairs, I'm going to pull out my shotgun and blow his fucking head off, <laughs> not guilty, well did you know this was going to be the night, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Pattern has it when he's drunk and he's belligerent and he's in a bad mood. That means I'm going to get my ass kicked. And tonight wasn't in the mood of getting my ass kicked. Wasn't in the mood to have my children watch me get my ass kicked. So guess what? I put a bullet in his head. (laughs) Bravo. Not guilty. But when he's not drunk, he's a great guy. When he's not high, he's a great guy. After he whips your ass, he says that he's sorry until the next time that he does it. Women, no more, no more, no more, no more. (laughs) Now he beat my ass the first time he did that. So the second time, didn't give him a chance. Took a gun, blew his head off. (laughs) Not guilty. Don't put me on the jury if you're the prosecution. Not guilty. Because not only am I not going to give that woman any jail time, I'm going to give her flowers and uh, my condolences. And saying you should have, you know, the you know, first time you should have done that, shouldn't have let them get away with that bullshit. So, uh, I'm not, you know, I I understand the women's point of view and this, that, and the other. But for for Snap, or for the Oxygen Channel, to sit there and try to make Eileen Warnos become this sympathetic figure. And all of a sudden then cast doubt in terms of the character of the men that she murdered. All seven of them, huh? She was talking about she was murdered or she uh, murdered out of self-defense. All seven of them, huh? All seven? All seven? All seven, huh? You never hear that shit when we're talking about Wayne Williams. You never hear that shit when it talks about male serial killers. You never hear that shit about, well, you know, uh, you know, Rex Krebs had a tough life. Uh, his father beat the living shit out of him. Ed Kemper, a poor guy. His mother treated him like absolute garbage. In fact, Ed Kemper, at least he was sane enough to kill the, kill the mother who, who was you know, making his life a living hell. Now, the fact that he went off and started killing other women's, you know. But, I mean, it's like, you know, give give me a break. Give me a fucking break. Same thing with Scott Peterson. You get these fucking losers out here who want to just refute everything and then come up with the, hey, you know, um, Lacey Peterson, you know, where they live, like, you know, there were like homeless people around. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you know, they could have done something. Well, do you have any proof or evidence? No, but they could have. Come on, man. I mean, you know, Give, give me give me, a fucking break. Give me a fucking break. Anything to get this motherfucker. You, so you want Scott Peterson walking around, huh? You want him hooked up with, uh, back up with the woman that he was banging while he was uh, still married to um, Lacey. Amber Fry, you want him back back with her and go walking around and maybe if he gets bored with her, maybe he can kill her and maybe you assholes can sit there and think of more excuses for why he uh, didn't do what he did. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Bible-thumping... Bible thumping, death penalty against losers—just make my blood boil. Sometimes with their bullshit. If there's any type of look, you know, there's some stuff going on here where it's kind of shaky. You know, there's some stuff. There's some evidence. There's some going on with the prosecution, this, that, and the other, where it's shaky. It doesn't look right. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we need to. We need to take another look. I'm all for. Um, People are talking about as soon as they get uh, convicted of murder and the death penalty, they need to go straight from the courthouse to the gas chamber. I'm not. I'm not for all that. I'm saying, hey man, you know, do your um, do your appeals. Do all of your appeals. All of your appeals, if it's needed. If there was something going on in terms of you thought was was uh, shaky with the prosecution or whatever with your trial, you, you go ahead and do that because we're far from perfect. But when you start filing appeals because, well, he was, you know. He was abused as a kid, and because of that, we need to make sure that no, no, no. Well, you know, because she was a prostitute and she came from a, No, 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 no. That's the that's the reason why she did it. But the reason why she did it because she was incapable and mentally, she wasn't at the right level of where we need to start executing people. No, 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 no. Did did she kill the person? Yes, she killed the person. But no, 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 no. Buts, no buts, no buts. Did she kill the person because she was being physically abused in a on a consistent basis? No, nope, but no, 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 don't want to hear any more. Do not want to hear any more. Do not want to hear any more. If you think someone is innocent, then go for the appeals. But if you're talking about, well, you know, I don't like the, I don't like the, um I don't, I don't like uh death row. I don't like uh capital punishment, so. You know, I don't think that we should be putting people who with split personalities. I don't think do we should be putting people who are mentally challenged. I don't think we should be putting people to death who come from tough backgrounds, who were abused to children and all that kind of stuff. No. If you start killing innocent people for no reason other than because you like it or because you're angry at society or something like that, get the fuck out of my existence. Get the fuck out of here. Because I'm trying to grow a community. I'm trying to grow a planet. I'm trying to grow a society where love, peace, unity, harmony understanding and loving of others rules the day not fucking people running around killing people and then we get off with the well you know poor thing you know she wasn't kissed at night before she went to bed by her mother so because of that she hated all men so she started killing she started killing men get the fuck out of here with that bullshit all right that's about all i have time for with that one i think i was more passionate about that than I was about Major League Baseball. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program. Wendell's World and Sports, I want to end today with the greatest, with the legendary, with the uh, person that, when I get to heaven, save me tickets at the front row to see, to listen to his concert, to see him in concert, can't wait for it. I'm listening, I'm going to end today's podcast with the great, the awesome, legendary Cupid. Draw back your bow! No, 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 no! Not Sam Cooke, and not the Spinners. I'm talking about the soulful, the legendary, the great Otis Redding. This was something where this wasn't even released on one of his albums. This was one of his uh, post muteus post-humanist albums that were uh, brought out, to where they were searching and digging for anything Otis Redding uh, recorded to put on a uh, to put on a CD or to put on a LP or whatever. So this was something that. Uh, Wasn't even issued when he first recorded it. But the soulfulness of this song with Otis. The greatest of them all. The greatest of them all. The greatest of them all. Love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding. Let's all strive for that as we listen to the great one. Mr. Redding, the greatest, if you would please. Music. Music.